Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everyone welcome to the urm podcast my guest today is josh wilbur and he's a man that needs no introduction so i'm going to keep this really really short in my opinion he's one of the top three living mixers in heavy music today you know him from his work with bands like Korn, Trivium, Lamb of God, Gojira, and an endless list of others. I present you Josh Wilbur. Josh Wilbur, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we got this going. I'm stoked that you agreed to come on. Yeah, you know, it's it always just kind of like a like a timing thing. Like, uh, it, it, I always feel like anytime we've ever talked about it in the past, I'm in the middle of a record that I can't talk about. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I just understand. feel crippled in the conversation. <laughs> well, I mean, you were saying that this is the first time in ages that you're not juggling three records. I've never actively tried to be in the studio with three bands at a time, but like you want to give every band like 100% of your time. So, like, it's I never want to be in that situation. So, you know, fortunately for me, the way that most of the records that I approach, if I know I'm going to be doing an album like coming up and a band sends me demos, I'm probably in the middle of another record when it comes. So what I'll do is I'll just take like, you know, a weekend or something when I'm not working on the other record and, you know, I'm just taking a break from it. And I'm going to listen to the whole demo, everything that the band sends and listen to every song and write down real quick my initial gut reaction to each song. And it's usually like, you know, love the verse, chorus needs work, um, you know, outro riff is banging, just whatever, my very like gut reaction to every little, every little piece of the song. Not piece, just overall, I guess, kind of global picture. And then I'll send back the band my comments and then I won't listen to it again because it's so easy to fall in love with, you know, like the more you hear, but, but the average listener is only going to get that one shot for you to sell them, you know, for the most part. I mean, if they're already a, you know, built-in fan, they might keep coming back. But I, I take that first gut reaction to something as like the most important thing I can have. So after I do that, then, you know, it's easy for me to just get back into whatever record I was doing. I didn't spend a bunch of time on that, but I spent the most important time on that because all the stuff that matters, I just did. And then, you know, I won't really listen to the songs again until it gets into the time to like work with the band when I'm officially moved on to, you know, all right, I'm done with this record. I'm moving on to this record now. 
and I'll kind of open it back up and I'll do the same process that I already did and not looking at my old notes. I just take the exact same because I've forgotten it by this point. I don't remember what they sent. And, you know, even better if I hear like a part where I'm like, yeah, 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 I remember this. This is awesome. You know, and I, I write down my gut reaction notes again to each song and then I'll compare. Then I take out my old notes and I look and honestly, like they usually are right in line. Like I have the exact same thoughts both times, which makes me tend to feel like confident when I like approach the band with, okay, this song right here, like I really feel like we need a better verse, you know, like maybe it's just a feel change. Maybe it's just a John B. You know, we just, something needs to happen here. So anyway, that's kind of like, I always seem to have like a group of demos I'm supposed to listen to in a band that I'm working with and you know, something else on the horizon that I'm dealing with. So, you know, it's always, it's always a juggle a little bit. When, uh, when you reopen the demos, uh, down the line, when you're ready to work with the band, are they updated versions that the band, you know, the band took your notes and reworked them and then you're work opening that or you're opening the originals? I suppose it could go either way. You know, it depends on the, the band and the process and, you know, how familiar I am with them. It really, it really, it really depends on the, each record, you know, like, um, it's funny, like one of the things I try really hard to do when I'm working with different bands is get into like their workflow a little bit. Cause it's so easy to try to like force everyone into my workflow, mm-hmm. but it just doesn't work. You know, like some people, for example, you know, um, I love doing drums last. I think a lot of guys do now, you know, it's so easy to like, that's kind of almost become the way heavy records are done now, I think. Yeah. So when I did uh, like the Soulfly's Ritual record, I was like, all right, check it out. We're going to, you know, I set up, up, I brought in a V kit, you know, I was like, we can work out, hash out the songs here. I grabbed the MIDI, you know, da, 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 da. and, you know, Max kind of looked at me and he's like, so like, uh, I still can stand near my amp, right? And I was like, all right, this plan is going to go away right now. I can already tell. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, not not going to fly. <laughs> well, at first I was like, yeah, I guess we could still plug in your amp and you can get headphones and, you know, we can still be in here with the V drums. And he's like, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's cool. And his, you know, his son Zion is the drummer and Zion's like, this is awesome. It's also so loud in the rehearsal room. And I was like, yeah, it's really kind of cool. You just can set the volume on the, the mains, you know, we're still having band rehearsal, so to speak, but, mm-hmm. and he's like, and then Max is like, yeah, yeah, you know, and then maybe we could just go in the other room and I can stand next to the drums and Zion's playing. I was like, this is done. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't even want to try. And I immediately abandoned it like right away. And then that record, they, they don't play to a click. They just jam live in the room. That's the way Max works. You know, like he just has to stand next to the drummer and they like play parts and be like, that's like the first, and that's like the chorus. That that was a good take, right? You know, you're like, <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. And then you go in later and like assemble a song. <laughs> Is being malleable or flexible like that something that you had to learn how to do, or is that built in? Is that natural to you? I don't know. It's something I'm aware of. Uh, I don't know if that means. Have you always been aware of it, though? You know, I had a real fortunate situation to work under so many producers before I started really producing. I mean, I guess I was always doing it. I just didn't know I was doing it. But, you know, I you know, worked with like Garth and Andy Wallace and Machine and like a bunch of other just great guys. So, you know, for me, I get to kind of cherry pick and see like different things that I liked and didn't like. And, you know, I worked at this studio in New York, Soundtrack. I started there like mop, mopping floors from midnight till eight in the morning and ended up working on R&B and hip hop records. And, you know, like my first sessions were like Busta Rhymes and Lil' Kim and stuff like that. So I've 
really seen every kind of manner that you can make a record and worked under almost every type of producer, engineer, or whatnot. I remember like random guys would come in that were like, you know, I'd always check the schedule. Soundtrack was a 10-room facility. It always had stuff going on. And I, I would get in the room, like look in the schedule and see like David Botchel's coming in. I'm like, what? You know, like, this is sick. You know, I was a kid, you know, like fired up. Actually, that particular record, I remember I was bummed because Andy Wallace was in the other room and he was going to mix Iowa or what became Iowa. And he had the same assistant back then, Steve Sisko, who had been with him for like 15 years. And sometimes I would fill in for Steve when he took vacation. <laughs> and Steve had come out to me and he's like, hey, Josh, I'm going to take vacation in like two weeks. You good to work with Andy? And I was like, heck yeah, I am, dude. Let's do it. And I go right into the schedule and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Steve's on vacation this week. And I'm like, Slipknot is coming in. No way. And then I look and my name wasn't on the gig. And I was oh, like, bummer. what? <laughs> What's going on? And then I looked, I'm like, well, what am I doing? And it was because I, I was like, David Bottrell, nothing face. That's super cool. I mean, like, I was, I was a huge nothing face fan back in the day. So I was like equally as excited to be doing that session. Not necessarily as big of a record, but it was <laughs> like David Bottrell had just come off doing Tool Anima or however you say it, and it was pretty exciting to work with him. Anyway, I'm just saying, I, get, I know I, I'm, I'm a talker and I get around uh, the point, but I got to see so many awesome dudes work with different styles that it made me very aware of how I do deal with bands, for sure. That makes sense. You know, and so like, I don't know that I'm necessarily trying to do it a certain way, but I'm definitely aware of how I'm dealing with bands and try to keep in check how I approach each situation. And also always try to remember that they're the artist. Because I think that's the biggest mistake a lot of producers make is they, and honestly, you know, it's a lot of the reasons I avoid doing too many podcasts and things like that. Because, you know, I almost feel like once you, once, if the focus starts shifting, you know, like this guy's some kind of rock star producer, like that takes away from the band and that's not cool to the band, you know, like they're the rock stars, you know. I just spoke to someone on the podcast a few weeks ago who said something really interesting about why old school producers were more more rock star-ish, like old school, like 80s era, 90s era, why it was more common for them to be tyrannical basically and super rock star. And it's because this guy's theory, and it makes sense, is because the bands were also on that level. So in order to be able to match the bands that they were working with, they had to have a similar sort of bravado. But the kinds of people that are in the industry now are a lot more level-headed and down-to-earth compared to the eras of excess. And so it makes sense for producers to be more down-to-earth and normal, I think. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, we still... I can't. I wish I could say the excess was gone because it's not totally, depending on the band that you're working with. But, and definitely rock stars are still rock stars, but I, I, I'm not... That all sounds accurate. Like, I think I agree with all of that. That's a great take on the whole situation. But I also think the mystery is a little gone. Yeah, I agree. Like, that alone gave the, you know, the producer... There was an aura of nobody knew what was going on behind the scenes. So, like, you could ride that mystery a little bit, you know, and tell the bands, like, you don't know. You don't know what I do. You know, like, now everyone's like, dude, I watched what you did on the documentary, man. It's like, no secret. <laughs> I think the air around producers is almost like the air around someone like David Copperfield or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it kind of had that vibe. I think 
like it's a fine line these days because I completely understand why producers and artists are uncomfortable with uh, the modern way of getting out there, social media and all that. But at the same time, I think it's almost the exception now to be able to get out there without embracing it to some degree. I mean, some people pull it off. Sure. But I think it's increasingly rare. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, everybody has some sort of social media presence nowadays, right? For the most part. Yeah, there, there's there's no way to avoid it. So question about mopping floors. Yeah. I think it's really cool that we're talking about that because you're talking about mistakes that producers make. I think one of the big ones that they make early, early on is they think they're too good to do certain things or that certain things are beneath them. Like mopping floors and you know your regular intern gopher type tasks that were associated with working your way up the studio ladder. But something that I've heard over and over again on this podcast talking to people is uh, people who go pretty far were never above doing whatever it took, basically. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You come across... I get emails often, you know, on like social media or, you know, messages or whatnot with people and they'll very often be like, oh, if you need someone to like, you know, edit guitars or if you need someone to like cut drums for you or something like that, you know, I'm like happy to jump in. I just got out of school and I'm like, dude, there is no way I would just grab some kid (laughs) off the street (laughs) on a record that's like really important. Like I make every record like it's my last one. You know what I mean? You're as good as your last record. That's how I, I approach it. And it matters. And I can't roll the dice on something like that with like a client. You know, it's not the way to try someone new out for stuff like that is you've the same way that I did. Like everyone always said, how do you, how do you, how do you get ahead in the studio? Like I was literally midnight till eight in the morning, mopping floors. And the turnover rate of interns, it's a 10-room facility, there's a lot of guys. The turnover rate was crazy high because people are like, fuck this, man, I'm not doing this shit. Like, Too good for it. And I thought that plenty of times too, man. You know, I was like, this blows. Like, actually, I didn't think that that often. I was so excited. I was like, I, you know, I grew up in Maine and I was from a small town and I was so stoked to be in New York City at a studio where like some of my favorite records had been done. You know, like I was just let me in the door. Like that was my attitude and I'll figure the rest out. I actually had a really hard time gelling with people. Like I was so green and I'm kind of an upbeat dude and it wasn't like New Yorkers a little surly sometimes. And <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's probably, not probably, I think definitely it's completely natural to say fuck this when you have to do something that's not fun. But I think that the big difference between people who go far and those that don't are when they get the fuck this feeling, they say fuck that and just keep doing it as opposed to fuck this and then quit, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had actually said to myself a couple of times, I'm like, I'm not going to quit here on this. Like, Got this far already, why? Well, I, I got beat. That's how my attitude was I lost. You know, like they beat me. Like... If I if mm-hmm. I came in as a janitor and I quit there like that was on me. Like my job was to climb the ladder. So, and you know, that's also a difficult thing cuz you know, you don't want to step on people's toes and 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 there's other people ahead of you in the studio and you want to make sure that you're respectful to them cuz they're the ones that need to teach you, you know? Like you don't want to like cut anybody off and it's hard to know when to like what steps to take 
to like keep your path running smooth without, I guess, without making any enemies either. You know what I mean? Like, for example, uh, I was working with the R&B band actually one time. This is probably one of my biggest breaks. And when? 2002-ish. Okay. But I was an assistant engineer. Pro Tools has just taken off and I'm pretty slick with it. You know, I'm feeling like I'm one of the early guys knowing the system, right? And there was an engineer who did not really know Pro Tools and he was kind of learning it on the client's dime and they got hip to it, you know? They figured it out. But as an assistant, your job is to try to like... Wait, wait, they figured out that he was learning it on their time? Yeah, they kind of yeah, knew. Okay. They were like, this guy doesn't really know what he's doing. I mean, he was, his, his ears were good. He was yeah. mixing that sounded good, but he was just like watching paint dry, trying to get through the, the program. And as an assistant, you know, I took this very serious. My job is to make him look good. No one should really even notice the assistant is there. If you're doing a great, the best assistants, you don't even realize they're there, right? The session just runs like a top and people notice when you're not there, right? Like the one day yep. that you don't show up and they get another assistant, they're like, why is nothing getting done? Like, where's the this <laughs> and the food didn't show? Like just you become essential because you make it run smooth. You know, that's like how you become a great assistant. And then people, they trust you with small things and therefore they want to give you, they'll, you get bigger responsibilities. That's just how it works. Anyway, this particular uh, you know, guy, they were like, um, they got to add some personal issues and they were like, kind of like arguing about stuff. And they asked him to like do an edit. And, you know, he said it can't be done. And uh, the clients were like, dude, we're not stupid. Like, <laughs> it can, we, we know it can I be know. done. He's like, just take that bar and put it there. And, you know, I was like, I'm just sitting in the back of the room quiet watching this whole thing kind of like play out. And the guy's like, all right, fine. And many times they had left the room and the, you know, engineer kind of called me over like, Josh, can you, you know, yeah, 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 here you there you go. And, and what, you know, sit back in the back of the room, pretend like I hadn't been up at the front at all. This particular time, it was tense. It was in the room. And I remember the, the engineer was like, this is so beneath me to even be doing this right now. He's like, I'm going to step out. Josh, why don't you like just take care of this minuscule thing for me while I walk out? And I was like, okay. Cool. <laughs> and so I walk up, but the, you know, the, the, the producer like looked at me and he's like, while you're sitting there, like he knew, like he, he's like, I'm not stupid. While you're sitting there, can you put this, can you move that and also duplicate this? It's like super quick edits and fly some stuff around. He's like, great, thanks. And then, you know, the other guy stepped in the chair and finished the mixes. So I like this engineer though. We, you know, we really got along and the, and the band, the producer takes me aside outside and he's like, listen, we are sick of this dude. Do you want to finish mixing this record? And I'm a guy that's never mixed a record at this time. You know what I mean? Like that's what we're aiming for. And this is for like, not even on your own for practice. I had done that, but this was like okay. the RCA records. You know, it was a big budget album. It was a pop record. You know, it was like, for all I knew, it was going to be the next sync type of record at the time, you know, because it was like that type of thing. So I want to do it, right? Like, I really want to do it. I didn't like the way it happened, you know? Like, I didn't like anything about it because that would have felt like I straight poached this guy's gig. So I was like, I remember I turned to the, the, the producer and I was like, hey, um, do the mixes sound good that the guy's doing? You know? And he's like, yeah, yeah, they sound good. And I was like, why don't you just let him finish? Like... If the mixes are sounding good at the end of the day, isn't that all that matters, right? And he's like, well, yes, but we won't be working with him again. I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. You know, that's on, you know, that's on you guys. He's, he's like, I was like, but you should, you should let him finish this record, you know? And he's like, all right, would you want to come track some vocals with us at our studio then on a different project? And I was like, absolutely. And so I ended up going and like tracking a bunch of other records for them. That guy did finish that record. 
And then I ended up working with with those with that producer th- those producers for like another two or three years, just doing pop and R and B and stuff. It was a big break. Did you have to wrestle with yourself a little bit to be like, this is not not a good idea? <laughs> I didn't even tell the other part. They actually one of the guys in the group was so irritated with him that they actually did. He was like, well, he's not mixing. It was a five guy group, and he was like, he's not mixing my songs. So they actually like sent that engineer packing, brought in another guy, a third party who was not me, who was not, you know, who hadn't been at the session. He ended up mixing like two songs. They slid that guy out and then the the original guy finished the record. But it was one of those things like they were going to move on. So, you know, at that point, after that record was done, it was going to be someone else. I wasn't stealing anybody's gig, you know, like at that point. makes sense. It's going to be someone else or it's going to be me and none of it has anything to do with me. It has to do with personality issues and other stuff and, you know, he mixed the record. He did a good job. It's that's it's not his, his ears and mixing and talent wasn't in question, but they weren't going to move forward. So, and I think any other time in my career, if I've been presented with an opportunity like that, I've made sure it wasn't like I don't I don't like the concept of people poaching gigs. I think that's a mess. I completely agree. Uh, I think that in addition to actually being good at what you do in this world, you also have to be really good at navigating the minefield, the relationship minefield. And I think that you always have to think long-term. Sure. And to basically drop a grenade on a relationship with a with someone who you're going to know for a really long time yeah. over one project is really dumb and short-sighted. But a lot of people do that without thinking of the long-term ramifications of creating that reputation for yourself and burning those bridges. Yep, yep. That was a big time, man. Sound, or my early days at Soundtrack were like, I was like the Wild West, man. Like one day you'd be working on a hip-hop record. The next day you'd be working, Trans-Siberian Orchestra was always in there doing all the like TSO. Do you know Trans-Siberian Orchestra? Yeah. Actually, they used to work down in Florida, right? Yeah, and uh, I've had, I'm, I'm friends with a dude that played guitar for them a few times, a dude named Bill Hudson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul O'Neill would work at a soundtrack there and they'd usually have like two rooms going. So it was cool at soundtrack. They'd have like Andy Wallace mixing Limp Biscuit, Linkin Park, Stain, Puddle of Mud, and like Slipknot, like one of those things. And then in the next room, you'd have like Busta Rhymes and Lil' Kim going. And Mob Deep was a staple over there. That was actually the session that they like broke you in on. Like, cause Mob Deep, it was a mess. <laughs> they would like, you'd have to show up at like, you know, the official session start time would be like 11 o'clock. And as an, as an assistant, you got to show up an hour early. So you show up at 10 and then... PM or AM? AM. Okay. Because the label booked the session, right? Like they're, they're not paying any attention to the artist. And the next thing, and, and the session's supposed to be 11 to 11, right? The studio, gosh, they made a fortune off this stuff because they're booking it. Anything over 12 hours is overtime. So they book 11 to 11. Everybody knows what they're doing. This is not like a coincidence that this thing happens. So you show up at 10, set up, engineer and producer, or the engineer probably showed up at like two. (laughs) (laughs) And then like at three and four, like random people would start trickling in that had nothing to do with the session, but were friends or whatnot. And then next thing you know, there's like a party going on. And there's like 30 people there, but the artists are still not there. (laughs) And as an assistant, you're just ordering food and like cleaning up and doing whatever random tasks that you're doing until the artist shows up at like seven o'clock at night. 
and you know, it's just like speakers. Oh, by the way, the, the, the beat that you're about to work on has been cycling since two o'clock pumping loud like <laughs> and the doors open everyone's in the hallway at the studio the soundtrack studio it was like it was crazy man but it like that was like the the session that you had to like cut your teeth on and if you got through that one then you know you'd moved on to other songs but a lot of people didn't last past that I'd be like i'm out <laughs> a friend of mine who's actually done really well he used to work at one of those uh mega hip-hop studios here in atlanta and He's doing well in metal and rock, but that's also kind of how he cut his teeth doing that stuff. And you tell me that like he'd be doing a Nelly session as the assistant and basically same thing, like session booked for 11 noon. People would start showing up 5 p.m. Then they'd just start listening to music, smoking blunts, having people over party. And then by like midnight, they would record one verse. And then that, yeah. that's that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my this is my mob deep session. Uh, another guy worked those sessions almost all the time, but he was the only assistant too. Man, this guy Sheldon, uh, he was the only assistant in the facility. Everybody else, you were just at the mercy of the studio. You were like, if they said, you know, you got to be here, you were there, you left at 5 a.m. They're like, we're going to need you at 9 a.m. You're like, I can't, I'm cooked. They're like, sorry, man, you got to be here. And, and like, if you didn't do that, they'd put you on what we call the soundtrack vacation. Like you just wouldn't get called for a couple like week or Soundtrack two. Soundtrack vacation. You know, like they're like, oh, okay, you don't want to work? We'll give it to, because there was enough assistance that they could just turn you off. You know, like the faucet turned off and you didn't have any work. But Sheldon, like that was kind of his gig. Like he always worked the Mob Deep sessions. He was a funny dude too. But Sheldon, because that was his gig and it was a tough gig, he was the only assistant that would walk in and just be like, yo, I'm not coming in tomorrow. <laughs> and no, like <laughs> management and everybody else just didn't do anything else about it. And I never understood, like, he just had the power to do that. He's like, I'm not coming in tomorrow, man. Forget it. What do you think it was about him that got the exception? It just, it makes me think of, there's always these scenarios, like, you hear about this in the military, too, how there's, like, certain people who can wear whatever the fuck they want on base, like special forces operators, for instance, apparently they don't need to follow the rules like everybody else. <laughs> and even though they're supposed to, they just don't and nobody says anything because they're badasses. Yeah. This is what I've heard. What do you think it was that... It's like Draymond Green in the NBA, right? Like he can complain more than other people before he gets a tech... You know, because he's complaining mm -hmm. the entire time, right? So then, like, he's, the <laughs> rope is just, you know what I'm talking about? Well, I don't know if you talk, I watch a lot of NBA, but they're, you know, random players can, like, mouth off way more than other players to the refs before they get called on it. I don't know. I th Well, I think, first of all, the clients liked him, you know, so. That's huge. That's the biggest, right? The clients want to yeah. work with him. That That he's part of the team that makes the clients come back to soundtrack, so. And literally, Mob Deep was in the studio for two years every single night. Holy fuck! And they didn't end till like four in the morning. So if the and that was over, the, that last five hours was just overtime. So the studio made a fortune, like a small fortune. It was all on two inch tape too, and the studio was like up billing. You know, two inch reels were like you know maybe you bought them for one hundred twenty bucks, but the studio was charging like three hundred bucks for a reel, like fifty percent markup. So in every session, you opened a reel or two. Right? You only fix three songs on a reel for these, you know, any kids paying attention that don't work on tape, but you could only fit 15 minutes on a reel. So maybe two songs, depending on what, you know, how long you were looping it for or whatnot. Anyway, like, so yeah, he was just built into the session. So it was like a, uh, it was just 
the studio knew that he was valuable to the whole thing and he knew he was valuable. I guess that's what it comes down to, right? Like they both know how valuable they are. So he's like, listen, I'm not coming in. You guys figure it out. It's not like you're not going to fire me because most interns quit on this session. Most assistants quit on this session. So man, that's how I feel like uh, with, we've got certain employees at URM that are just stars and they make so much shit happen that I don't care I don't care about normal things. Like I don't care what time they work. I don't care about anything because they do such a great job that it's just like, do your thing. <laughs> it's cool. I want you to be happy. What's interesting to me about handling a session like that is that's a great way to weed out the week because I think that most people would just get flustered and frustrated by the amount of chaos. Yeah, for sure. To be able to handle it, that's a special kind of person who can keep their cool and still find a way to make a situation like that be productive. Yeah. I mean, the lessons learned at my time at Soundtrack was was more than I could ever count. One time, one of the best lessons ever, I got screamed at by Busta Rhymes. Like screamed at. I've told this story more times than I can count, but it's it's worthwhile because it was a great it was a great <laughs> lesson learned. Well, I, I haven't heard it, so I'm all ears. <laughs> you know, I was I'm an assistant engineer, and Bus has got two rooms going on, right? I remember the dude Vinny that mixed most of his records back then. Vinny was mixing. I don't know if you ever heard Busta Rhymes' song "Fire." I don't know, maybe. Anyway, it was one of the singles. So the mix, Vinny's mixing it, and I'm you know everything's outboard gear back then. I'm taking notes and whatnot. As Vinny's mixing it, you know you have to take the spike sheets for analog compressors and stuff. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like the, mm-hmm. I said to Vinny, I was like, man, I better make sure these recall notes are on point. He's like, what? And I was like, this song is a guaranteed recall. He's like, why would you say that? Why would you jinx me like that? <laughs> I was like, there's no bass line. He's like, no, man, this song is just gonna, like, it's like drums and the loop. I was like, there's no bass line, man. It's a hip hop song. Vinny's like, don't even say that. Like, why would you jinx me like that? And then two days later, I get the call for the session hey, you got to recall fire in Studio E. <laughs> and I walk in and Vinny's like, you motherfucker, man. I knew you were jinxing me when you said that. I was like, why are we recalling it? He goes, because there's no baseline. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> he's like, Buzz is going to add a baseline to it. And I was like, all right. So whatever, I recall a song. Now, when we had mixed it originally, you know, it's all on tape and uh, we're going to get a little technical on this. That's cool. To non-tape users, they're going to get a little lost. But the tape has a very speed, right? So you can kind of like just nudge up the the speed of the reel. It pitches it up a little bit, but you know, it's if you just go a little bit, you can speed up the song. Within reason. When Bus walks in and listens to it the first time, he walks in kind of like bobbing his head and he goes over and he just like walks he was he's he was tech savvy. Walks right over to the tape machine and just starts like tapping like bam, bam on a very very speed, just nudging it up until he's like locked in with his head bobbing. He's like, that's where it needs to be right there. No problem. You know, I'm like a competent assistant. I look over. I'm like, okay, it's very sped 1.25. Like I write it down in my notes. Very sped 1.25. Got it. So when we're all done the mix, the next day when I'm recalling it, what do I do? I go to the tape machine, got to speed up the tape 1.25 to match the previous mix. And the way you would check your recall at the end of the night, you know, back then is you'd put in the DAT and you'd hit play on the DAT and you'd hit play on the tape machine, kind of like just, you know, freestyle, like lock them, like run them both at the exact same time. Um, You got kind of good at catching it. And then you could just listen down to the whole DAT with the tape machine and you just swap the on the SSL what you were listening to and just make sure the mixes sounded the same, right? Just A being against the previous mix to this one. So I do it the whole length of the song. Nothing drifts, same tempo, whatever. And then uh, Bus walks in 
And he's like, I'm going to be laying the baseline on this. And I'm like, oh, shoot, we're all out of tracks. Like, the, we'd use up to 24 tracks. So I got to put up a slave reel, right? And so I kind of panic. I go, my quick, you know, because he's getting a little impatient. So I quickly run out, get a blank tape. You got a stripe sympathy on it, you know, so you lock them up. If anybody's paying attention, you know, you have to put time code on the, on the two tape machine on one track just so it, you can lock them up to each other and you use a link, links machine to lock the two tape machines up. So I'm like racing around, like trying to print Simpty and it's all real time, you know? So eight minutes of just printing Simpty and then, or 15, if I did the whole reel, I don't even remember. Nonetheless, you know, dude's getting impatient. Lock it up, two things, get a track, get his sequence, you know, get his uh, keyboard running into the, the new track. And I'm kind of just like, okay, I think I'm good, I'm good. And he walks in like, yo, we ready? And I, and I, you know, I just kind of was like, yeah. Yeah, we should be good. Like, I didn't really check it, but it should be good. And then, you know, he starts, like, messing with the keyboard with a little bass line thing, and he's, like, bobbing his head, and he's like, yo, this is slower. And I look over, and I see 1.25, and I, I had just listened to it with the dad, right? And I was like, no, 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 I sped it up 1.25, same as you did it. He's like, yo, this is slower. And I'm like, no, but I, bus, I just checked it against the dad from last night. Like, it's the exact same t- tempo. He's like, are you calling me crazy? I was like, I'm not calling you crazy. I'm just telling you, I listened to the dat, the entire song length of it. It didn't drift. It's the same as it was last night. Truth be told, him being who he was and me being who I was, he could have ripped my head off right then. Like, because I was getting a little mouthy with him. And he looks at me and he's like, if I go get Vinny, who was an engineer in the other room, he had had another guy just in there to kind of help it get set up while Vinny was mixing in the other room. If I go get Vinny right now, he tells me this is slower. You're going to call me crazy then? So now I'm mouth off. I'm like, why don't you go get Vinny? And he looks at me, wide-eyed, <laughs> turns around, marches out. He could have punched me in the face there, to be honest with you. Like, he had every right. Comes marching back in. Vinny doesn't even really know what's going on. He's like, play the song. And I, with attitude, kind of like spin my finger. Boop. Let me hit the play button with a little bit of punk ass attitude bam i hit it he looks at vinny's like is this the same tempo as it was last night vinny's like hell no this fool is trying to tell me (laughs) that i don't know my own song he lays into me so hard screaming at me and i shrink i mean he's a big dude too like i'm like immediately just cowering like what and so now i actually use my ears rather than my eyes and i realize fuck, man, this is slower. Like, what did I do? Like, I know I sped it up and I'm like, kind of like, uh, like uh, I'm like panicking. And then I realize when I put up the slave reel, I had to put in the links and the links overtakes the machine control of the tape machine and it overrides the very speed. Now the links is in control. So I actually have to very speed the links controller up to get the tape machine to s- slew up the speed. I'm 100% wrong. This guy screams at me and then just storms off into the lounge. Now I got to solve the problem. So whatever, I solve the problem. And then I just walk out I'm like, I got, I mean, I, I worked this guy all the time. He was always in soundtrack. I got to just go address this. And I remember walking into the lounge with my tail between my legs. And I'm just like, yo, bus man, I am so sorry. Like you were the artist. I never should have second guessed you. Like I'm, I'm, I really, I, I was 100% wrong and, and I'm, I'm very sorry. And he's like, Josh, you're new to the flip mode technical squad. But when you're working with me, your internal machine, he's like pounding me on the chest when he says it, your internal machine <laughs> is better than any piece of equipment out there. And I'm like, okay, fucking <laughs> words to live by from Buster Rhymes. Like one of the many valuable lessons learned in those years. And that's so interesting that that story is fascinating because I remember as an artist working with producers early on in my artist career where I had those kinds of issues where I was like, that's not what it's supposed to be like. 
and producer would respond with, yes, it is because of this data that's on the screen. I'm right. That's what it says. And it's like, no, you're not right. I know what it sounds like. And I've had that argument with somebody a couple times from the perspective of the artist. Those arguments happen a lot. The issue though is sometimes the artist is wrong. <laughs> sometimes. <but> <laughs> yeah. So how do you, so like, where's the line? Cause when I had the argument, I was right. And sounds like Buster Rhymes was right. But where do you draw the line? Because I think as your job as a producer is to, you know, hold the line when the artist might fuck it up. Yes. See, this is right. There's no absolutes in this. Like, let me just, whatever I say, whatever I'm about to say, yeah. there's no absolutes. And I think we're talking about the biggest challenge of being a good producer is this exact situation when you reach a conflict with the artist. It's tough because, yeah, sometimes you are right. Sometimes you're not. And I think just recognizing that sometimes you're wrong and sometimes you're right, and if the artist can do that as well, you're going to have a smooth running session. I kind of have a, a, a saying, I shouldn't have to convince you. Well, this is a little different, more like on artistic things. If I have an idea like the melody should go like this or we should cut back to this, I don't really feel like I should have to sell you on that too hard. You should hear it and be like, yeah, that is better. You know, like better is better attitude, right? Like on Lamb of God Records, that's the running kind of mantra on the whole session. Like better is better, man. Like someone loves a riff and someone else is like, we should really try to change this. And you'll see like, you know, Willie or someone just sitting there and go, I mean, what do you got? Better is better. Let's hear it. You know, like knowing that they love that riff, but okay, top it. You know, if you do, then we'll all shift. And, you know, that actually... I have such a great working relationship with Lamb of God in particular that that kind of thing happens constantly. And it, go, and it goes both directions. I think that's part of the reason we've worked together for so long. Um, but anytime you get into a situation with an artist, it is a tough one to try to remember when my job is to maintain their artistic integrity, right? They're the one's name that's on the record. I mean, my name is on it, but it's their album. Like it's their art. And I try to remember that first. And I've in, in fact, I have said straight out to several artists hey, I really, really, really think that we need to do X, Y, Z. At the end of the day, though, I understand and recognize this is your record. So I will have to default to you at the end of the day if you really want to go this direction, but I cannot express to you <laughs> how much I think we really <laughs> should be doing this. <laughs> And, you know, the, those things pan out in different ways. I'm sure there's a million stories where I could tell you where it went one way and... Um, someone they went the other way. Well, something that you just said is that it works best when both of you are capable of admitting that you're wrong. But what happens when you're dealing with an artist who is not capable of that and they are legitimately making the record worse? You know, honestly, I think it's been a long time since I've had a client like that. Um, I think the cream tend to rise to the crop and uh, the, yes. what did I, I just messed that whole thing up, but you know what I mean? Cream rise to the top. I, I was doing crop and top and something. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, a lot of the bands that I'm working with have been around for a while now. Like, um, they, they know some the legacy score. bands and, you know, even younger bands that, you know, of, of mice and men, for example, like they've made what, six or something records and they're still like super young guys. Cause they get signed when they're trivium's actually the same way. Trivium got signed when they were like kids and they're like, eight records in now but they're still they're like in their prime you know but they've all kind of survived this long because they're they know what they're doing and they also know how to work within a group 
And I think that's the reason bands survive. You recognize that you're working within a group. It's not a... Or they become solo artists, right? And then it becomes like... it's a, Then one guy's in charge of the whole thing, which that can work too, you know? Like you see other artists, like, you know, the singer or the guitar player, like break off and do their own thing. And it does work because now they're just doing... They're the only one that had a vision. Those situations exist. But I think generally speaking, for myself, I haven't had too many situations with guys that aren't easy to work with. The thing that I noticed and just echoing what you said is that the most problems I ever would have would be with the smallest bands. It's always the smallest bands. The smaller the band, the more difficult the record, for sure. Well, they have something to prove. I mean, every band, I think bigger bands always have to outdo themselves and they want to keep it going. But if they never even had something going in the first place. There's still that mountain to climb rather than staying at the top of the mountain. It's like, a, it's a different mentality. Sure. And a lot of these bands, like a younger band, for example, don't really realize the job description, like, especially if they've been cutting their own demos and stuff. They don't understand that when they come into the studio with me, that's, they don't have to worry. Like their job isn't to worry about like, for the most part, the Sonics aren't their responsibility. You know, they can say what they like or they don't like, but it's my job to get it there. Like, they don't have to feel like, like, I'll steer them to that, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, you focus on writing the songs. Like, that's your job in the band. And not that you don't have a say, because in, you know, in our business, engineer, producer, artist, writer, like, the lines are so blurred. Sometimes it's, you know, it's difficult to define for sure. Once again, making the group kind of mentality really important. But... I had a band one time, they were like trying to talk to me about what pickups they should use on the record. And we hadn't heard a song yet. (laughs) And I I was like, dude, (laughs) no offense, man, but like, (laughs) we're so far from worrying about the pickups right now. (laughs) Like, we just need a song that's good and then we can worry about what we got to make it sound like. That's a very uh, common issue I find with, uh, it's also with people learning production, worrying way too much about gear as opposed to their ears. Yeah. Just worrying about the wrong stuff, I think. Yeah, I watched a, 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 a little bit of your interview with uh, Tom Lord Algae. How do you say it? Algae? Algae, I think. I know I just put you on the spot big time. <laughs> <laughs> I, wa- I just call him TLA. Yeah, yeah, I watched your interview with TLA. I was about to do that anyway, just to avoid it. But who I think is one of the greatest ever. He's so good. And... Absolutely. I, you know, I remember him saying it's just, it all just comes down to how you, how guys like us hear the music. And I thought that was like a really, I was like, wow, that's a great statement. Like, that's the truth. That's really what it comes down to. Because when I'm mixing a record, I'm not a big AB, listen to other people's albums stuff. Unless someone specifically asks me to, you know, like, can you just make it, listen to this? And, you know, I'll take that into consideration. But I've often found the fastest way I ruin my own records is if I listen to somebody else's. Because I ruined whatever special cool thing I had going on in mind that made it not sound like everything else, you know? And as soon as I, like, listen to someone else's, I, like, it's hard not to chase something, even if it's worse, you know? Like, you could put on a record you hate the sound of <laughs> and, you know, have a mix that you want to like. You're like, oh, but their guitars do kind of sit in a cool way, way. And then you just tear your thing apart and, like, ruin whatever awesomeness you had going on. I think it comes down to trusting your own tastes, which I think is a tough thing to achieve, but it's, it's crucial. You're basically, you're getting hired for your tastes and for your, your instincts at the end of the day. Yeah. What, that's what it breaks down to. Is that something that you had to learn confidence-wise? 
I don't know. You know, I'm always trying to... I don't use the same stuff, like, mix to mix. You know, I think, like, if you listen to my corn record or my, you know, that I... I, I guess it helps that I didn't produce those two, but, like, uh, the corn record that I mixed and, like, the Parkway Drive record that I mixed. I love that corn record, by the way. Thank you. Which one? I did two of them. <laughs> well, I like them both. The first one you did... With Rotting in Vain. Yes, that one. Yeah. I'm not good with names, that one sounds insane. What's cool about that one too is it's not mastered, I guess. I don't know if you would call it mastered. It's literally the way it came off the board. Really? And uh, we just turned it up till it clipped. Like literally bumped the output until it clipped. Because everyone liked the mixes so much that we were just like, let's just leave it. <laughs> That's so unconventional. It is very unconventional. And now that you know that, you'll hear it. But it's, it was cool, man. Like... <laughs> Everyone kind of fell in love with it. And they were like, I mean, the mixes are great. Can you just make it louder and not change anything? And I was like, yeah, turn dial up. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Is that something that, were there any skeptics involved? Like maybe at the label or something? It's kind of different. It was, I mean, <laughs> I think... I mean, all these, you know, a lot of these uh, mastering plugins and limiters and emulators and clippers, it's all kind of the same thing, right? You know, I mean... Turning it up. Yeah, we're just trying to find a way to make it louder. But a lot of times when you're in that process, you start being like, well, we need to EQ it and maybe some multi-band compression and this or that. And, you know, maybe you didn't need that. Maybe the mix just sounded good. I remember uh, <laughs> going back to TLA for a second. So I did this... I, I did a song, I tracked a song that he mixed back when I was working with uh, Dr. Luke doing pop records. I did a song that ended up being Leona Lewis, I Will Be, which was one of the sickest sessions ever because they recorded an entire orchestra for it, like a real orchestra. It was like harp, everything. It was a wild session. And I remember hearing his mix, like not from mastering, just his mix, like what, what he sent. And I was like, this sounds perfect. <laughs> like nothing is wrong with this, you know? Like, and I think situations like that for me, like when, especially when I was working with, same with Andy Wallace, you know, like uh, I got to sit behind him for a long time, more than anybody else. Uh, Andy Wallace was the guy I got to work with the most. Uh, him in full force, the pop guys. I should say pop, R&B, hip hop, pop. That's what they did. But between them and Andy, who's, I just got to sit behind other dudes and realize there's not as much trickery as we might think early on getting into this. It's just balancing it out and getting it right. Like, sorry, there's not as much... Like, I think when I first started, I was like, I suppose once I get this mastered, it'll found, sound like a real record, you know? Like, <laughs> and then, like, that was the... Like, there was always something maybe that I didn't have access to when it really isn't necessarily the case. I just needed to get better. That makes me think of that... Gordon Ramsay show where he goes and he saves restaurants. Have you seen that? No. <laughs> it was around five or 10 years ago or something. Basically, it was a reality show where he would find a restaurant that was failing, go in there and basically whip them into shape. There would always be a point where he took their menu apart and like redid their menu for them. And one of the things that came up all the time was that people would just use too many ingredients and were just going over the top with everything. He would do stuff that had like five ingredients 
and it would just be incredible because you knew exactly how to use them. Yeah. And in what proportions, I think it's the, it's the same idea. Very often I'll trap myself, especially on my own productions, more so than somebody else's. But when I mix my own productions, I'll like mix them and be like, this is terrible. And then like listen to the board rough mix that I had. And I'm like, why is this so much better than, than my mix? And it's because like, I did that when I tracked it. Like I EQ'd the toms. Like I, I, I'm pretty heavy with the EQ going in sometimes. And then for whatever reason, when I mix, I find myself doing the same moves, but it starts becoming too drastic. You know, if I dip the mids on the toms when I was recording them, and when I'm mixing it, I'm like, oh, I, I, you know, I like to dip mids and toms. Let me do it. And then <laughs> next thing I know, I'm like, why does the rough mix sound so much better? It's like, cause I already did all that. Like it sounded good. I just needed to not do anything. Man. So do you ever find yourself going back to the rough and yeah. using that? Uh, not using the rough, but I'll very often import a portion of it. Like, uh, okay. So that burn the priest covers record that we did, uh, with lamb, mm-hmm. it was like, we did that whole record in like two weeks. It was super cranked out. Randy did all the vocals in, I want to say, two or three days. He did like three songs a day. Beast. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was super fun. We had like such a good time doing it. It was kind of hysterical. But particularly the vocals, I remember like Mark was like, dude, the vocals don't sound as good. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't really, I didn't do anything. He's like, it was way better in the rough. And I'm like, I didn't change anything from the rough. God damn it, he was right, first of all. So I finally had to go back to like the session I tracked it in when I was in Richmond before I got back to LA and like import the vocal settings. And all I had done was like a slight low mid cut or bump. Like it was nothing, man, but it was like the littlest amount on the vocal. And if I had just left it alone, (laughs) like as soon as I put it back to like the flat, the way that I had it when we tracked it, Mark heard it instantly and he was like, there we go. That's exactly how it was. And I was like, God damn, he's right. It sounds way better. I'm like, I just felt like I needed to do something to it when I mixed it. You know, like I had this, like, like it needed to go through another process. Kind of like reamping actually. Like a lot of people, it's a little pet peeve of mine, will say, you know, if you need anyone to do reamping or anything. And I'm like, reamping isn't part of making a record. Not standard anyway. Like sometimes it is. But I don't start a record going, and then when I reamp the guitars, like that's never the plan. Yeah, when I when I make them good later, because they suck <laughs> now. <laughs> right, like nine out of ten times, the tr- the tone I tracked is the one that I'm going to mix on the record. Every once in a while, you know, like I'll be like, hey, all right, I can't make this work, you know. And, and same thing when someone gives me a record to mix that I didn't record, I will try my best to work with whatever guitars that they, the producer sent. Cause that's, you know, that's their artistic take. And it's not my job when I'm just a mixer. I try to get real clinical. Like, again, I'm trying to just, they sent me the production and I'm going to try to maintain every aspect of their production the best that I can. If it gets to a point where they're like, man, the guitars just don't, I don't know. I wish they were then, you know, I always have an amp and cab mic'd up in my studio or whatever. I'm like, oh, no problem. Well, I can certainly ramp it if you'd like me to, but it's never like the goal. Man, that's a pet peeve of mine too because I've been involved in so many records where so much time went into getting the tracking tone, like sometimes a week or something, just like amp shootout after guitar shootout after cab shootout, just over, you yeah. know, like, and then, but always with the idea of we're going to reamp it later. It's like, 
why, <laughs> if you're going to reamp it later, why are we going through this trouble now? Like if you've already made that choice, I don't understand it. And if you're going through this trouble now, why not go all the way and get the tone you want? I don't understand. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Oftentimes too, and it doesn't always happen, but every once in a while, in fact, I just reamped something recently where I didn't necessarily love the tone that they had, but certainly I could tell when I was reamping it that the guitarist played to the tone, you know, like, like yep. it, it, certain notes worked and it was clearer in the track that he, they gave me just because he was clearly, you know, putting his hand in the, on the bridge in a certain way that was working with whatever tone he had going. And when you're reamping, you're definitely running a risk that you're going to lose a little bit of that. You know, you certainly play through through the tone in, in some aspect. I've always felt like there's some sort of a loss in reamping. I mean, I've had, I've experienced really great reamps, but it's just never, it's never quite as cool as the real thing, I guess. I mean, it could be pretty damn good, but I feel like... Maybe it's, you know, because you're, you when well, you played it through the tone. I think that's what it is. You adjusted your hand in such a way to make it work for what you were hearing, you know? It's like switching your monitors out halfway through a mix, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely going to change the EQ afterwards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You said something earlier that I want to touch on. You said that you don't feel like you should have to convince somebody about an idea. And I want to talk about that for a second because that's so important in my opinion. I've always thought that People shouldn't argue about musical ideas because it makes no sense to argue with words about something that you should just be able to listen to. I've always thought that if you have an idea, you should be able to play it for somebody and then either they like it or they don't. And that should be it. That's all the argument you need. That should be. And, you know, there's so people definitely get attached to stuff. And, you know, like I said, the more you listen to something, you start liking it, which is why I try not to spend a lot of times with demos because I'll do the same thing. I'll fall in love with it, you know? You need that first listen, which that, honestly, that's the best reason to have a producer. And a lot of that is why, not always, there's always exceptions, but bands that self-produce, especially like, you know, if you look at like a big band's catalog, like that one album that they self-produced is probably not their best. And I'm not thinking of specific examples right now, and I'm sure that I am. I'm sure that there are exceptions to it. I've got some examples in mind. Well, don't bring me Horizon self-produce, and their stuff sounds great, and their songs great, and they seem to get bigger every record. So clearly, there's exceptions to the rule. Yes, but very often, you know, you'll see a band, particularly like even a metal band or something, and they like self-produce that one record, and you know, they wrote it, they lived with it, they created it, they never got that first opinion of the final product. And by the time that someone, they, you know, who was it? Maybe the label or whoever hears it at the end, it's too late. Like, they're not going to change it. Someone would be like, dude, I don't know, man. This is not working. They're like, no, 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 it's great. You know, I had an artist one time legitimately tell me there, there was like some like slow trippy part in this song. And I was like, yeah, this is not working. Like, I don't like this at all. And they're like, you don't understand because you don't smoke weed. Ah. Uh, and I'm like... Logical. Dude, I'll give you that maybe smoking enhances your experience I'll, I'll i'll give you that i shouldn't need it to make me like something <laughs> it should be good pre-mind altering drugs <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's not a very solid argument <laughs> that was a real <laughs> argument that actually happened with a band like you just don't understand this part because you don't smoke weed <laughs> that's like saying 
my band sounds good when you're drunk or something. <laughs> right. Like, like, right. It doesn't actually, that's no, a it doesn't. Example. You're just drunk. <laughs> you're just, you just you're don't just understand drunk. his band cause you're not drunk. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, yeah. Everything sounds better when you're drunk. No, no, no. That's, that's every, every person that's ever been to a festival concert in their life. They sounded so much better at the show <laughs> than they do on their album. Yeah. Cause of the, because of the 15 drinks you had. <laughs> so when you were working at Soundtracks, did what you're doing now, was that in your mind? Like, did you think it was going to go this far? Was that the goal? I don't know. I don't even know what my goal was. You just wanted to be in it. I just wanted to be in it, man. I loved it. I loved everything about it. The way I even ended up at Soundtrack. When I was in high school and uh, I went to a communications college, while I was in college, actually, I just took out every record that I liked the sound of. I just took them all out of my CD rack, Every record that I had that I just, on a Sonic, I'm like, I like this one. This sounds great. This sounds great. This sounds great. And I literally just wrote a spreadsheet out. And, you know, what record, who did it, and where it was done. And I was like, uh, okay, this one was done in whatever studios LA. This was mixed by Andy Wallace at Soundtrack in New York City. This one, da, 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 mixed at Andy, Andy Wallace, Soundtrack New York City. Andy Wallace, Soundtrack New York City. God damn, Andy Wallace is doing a lot of things that I like. Andy Wallace, Soundtrack New York City. Well... It seems to me that if I want to be working on the kind of records that I like, I need to get my ass to soundtrack in New York City. I just sent him a cover letter and a resume, and I was like, I will do anything, you know, like, and then got the job mopping. <laughs> Why do you think that your letter worked? I'm just wondering, because, man, so many cover letters come in. You have to understand, it's a 10-room facility. So they needed people. They need people. There's sessions all night, every night, and they were open 24 hours. So... There are, at any given point at the time, we'd have like maybe 10 interns, they called them. I called us janitors. But (laughs) (laughs) at the time, you know, at any given point, the studio had at least 10 interns running around in the studio's heyday, you know? It was actually two buildings. You had to go around the corner, like 21st Street and 936 Broadway, and it was like... God, that's extreme. It was crazy, man. It was awesome. I mean, I still think about it. Like, there was a... and for me, you know, coming out of school, I'd never seen an SSL in my life. What did you go to school for? Um, I got an associate's degree in communications at New England School of Communications, and they had a little audio program, but like their audio program, actually that school now has like a totally legit audio program. I mean, a lot of those graduates are like doing some pretty real stuff. When I was there, they had a Mackie 32.8 and four ADAP machines. It was not the same spot. (laughs) Was that your goal though, even back then? Like you're going to get into audio? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I went there because I could afford it. It was in Maine where I was from and they had a little audio program. It's what was available. Yeah, and in in retrospect, it worked out because I think a lot of this, the the career path, you can look at the same way, say maybe like like a radio DJ host, you hear that they become like, the big fish in a small pond kind of thing, you know, like... Howard Stern's story for sure. That's kind of how it was with me. Like, it's weird to say without sounding like I'm tapping myself on the back, but I definitely became kind of like... I think everyone at the school kind of knew, like, I was the one in the studio that knew what was up and had a good idea of, like, how to run the place. I was the only one that turned out anything that sounded remotely like a record, (laughs) you know? Like, everyone was still struggling and... I had taken all the audio courses, all of them in the first year, and I had a whole another year left, and I was like what am I going to do here? And I was taking like radio broadcast classes and, you know, things like that. So I worked up and got myself, I, 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 you know, spoke to the school and set up an independent study, which gave me access to the studio. And I wrote my own curriculum for, you know, what I would accomplish in my independent study. And 
this is actually, I'm pretty sure what got me the gig at Soundtrack is that I showed this massive assertiveness, I guess, to better myself. I just created my own independent study at school and found a way to get credit for it and wrote my own curriculum. I'm going to record a gospel choir. I'm going to record a jazz thing. I'm going to do this. And I expect to prove that I know how to do this at the end. And the school's like, cool, that's great. We'll sign you off on it. They gave me keys to the studio. Next thing you know, I'm like cutting my own band's demo in the studio after hours, you know, and really took advantage of that little studio. So then when I hit up Soundtrack, I remember uh, the guy that gave me the job, Ken Thornhill. He was, uh, you know, I showed up at, at Soundtrack in New York. This actually seems like an appropriate time too. Like, so... I grew up in Maine, which is like the whitest place on earth. Maybe not the whitest place on earth, but it's pretty white. Pretty damn white. It just seems like appropriate at this particular time and like culture that we're in right now and with all the craziness going on. Just so everybody knows, it's July 10th, 2020 right now. Yeah, July 10th, 2020 in the middle of the pandemic and political arguing over Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matters. Maybe the most insane time period I've ever experienced. It's the most insane time period uh, ever. As if when people said Black Lives Matter, they don't think that all lives matter. Let's just make sure you understand where I stand on that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the two biggest career jumps that I had were given to me by black men. Ken Thornhill and half of the soundtrack studio staff were all black. And I came from Maine and there was not a single... We had like one black kid in my high school. And I didn't even think twice about it because I never saw him, you know? But I knew he was there because he was the only one. But I didn't even know racism was real because there was no reason to deal with it. It didn't exist because... It wasn't even part of your world. It wasn't part of my world. And I moved to New York, or I, I didn't, I took a train to New York to go for a job interview at Soundtrack Studio. And, you know, I opened the door and like 50% of the staff of the studio was black. And I'd never seen anything like that. And I was even, I, I remember actually thinking like, whoa, right, of course. Why, for, you know, I think in my mind, I just assumed I would walk into a sea of white people, right? Like that's <laughs> what I expected to happen because I'd never seen that many black people. I remember Ken, when he hired me early on, I was having trouble making friends for sure. And it had nothing to do with uh, race or color. It had to do with, I was a dork from Maine. Like I just... <laughs> could not. I was just a, I was so eager and trying so hard and my sense of humor was different and I just couldn't make it work. Like the other interns didn't like me. It was obvious. It was just like a really like struggling time for me. And you know, I'm a people person. I like talking and I had zero friends. And I remember like Ken, the guy that hired me, Somehow we got into a conversation, which is actually unusual because he was a very high. Once he hired me, I mean, realistically, he worked in the office and I was midnight to eight in the morning. Our paths weren't going to cross for several months until I worked my way up onto the day shift. But I remember him being like, hey, man, you just got to learn. Like people from all walks of life are going to gel. You just got to find your way to make it fit. And I was like, okay, yeah, he's right. You know, like how am I going to gel with these New Yorkers? <laughs> and it was maybe the best thing that ever happened in my life because I got immersed in like tons of different cultures and like, I mean, hip hop, I didn't know anything about hip hop and all oh, my first plaque is for little Kim. Like how cool is that? You know, like what an amazing experience for me. And then I meet the full force guys and like, it was kind of a running joke with, with Lou, like a Lou, we were taking like a photo for Mix Magazine. He's like, get in here, Josh, we gotta get a little cream in this coffee. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
Like it was just a, like an amazing experience. And I made friends who I still have to this day because of all that. And it made me a better person. So and I'm off topic for sure. But it seemed, it seemed relevant. We go everywhere. What was the actual question? <laughs> I don't remember. I actually remember. You had asked me uh, how a lot of people send in things at Soundtrack. Oh, yes. Yes. Endless sea of resumes. Endless seas of resumes. Because I developed, I think, that independent study at school. That kind of set me aside as someone who would like work a little harder than everybody else. And when I showed up, God, dude, I showed up to this soundtrack and I remember walking, I'd never been to New York, right? Like I'd never left Maine really. I mean, born and raised in a pretty small town in Maine. And I remember walking into that place. I bought a three piece suit, dude. <laughs> like, oh, wow. I was like, I, you really didn't know. <laughs> I was like, I am wow. not messing this up. I showed up in a full suit with my cover letter and my resume. And I actually remember Holy one of the other shit. assistants who I became friends with later. <laughs> like, I remember him <laughs> seeing me when I walked in looking at me like, wow, look at this herb. <laughs> <laughs> I had a bunch of piercings back then and I took them all out. I was like, no, this is, I'm, I'm going to like look professional. And then, uh, you know, I walked in Ken Thornhill. He was the manager, studio manager. He was like, yeah, uh, well, <laughs> knowing what I know now, he needed a janitor for like that night. <laughs> like someone, like basically someone had been like, fuck it, I'm out and just didn't show up the night before. And so now they go through the stack. <laughs> all right, who can mop some floors tonight? Cause I remember he asked me like, can you come down for an interview? And I was like, when? He's like, um, today, tomorrow. And I was like, I was in college in Bangor, Maine. New York City is like a nine to 10 hour drive. And I was like, yeah, I could be there tomorrow. <laughs> Having no idea yeah. like how I was going to sort that. And I remember I like just jogged my car, like went to like JCPenney's and bought a suit and then just started driving to New York. I mean, that's what you got to do. I've known a bunch of people who when the opportunity comes up like that and it's super sudden, they don't jump on it. And then they wonder why things didn't work out the way they did. And I've noticed a lot of opportunities that have come up in my life have been of that nature. Like, yo, you want to do this? It's tomorrow. Yeah. Or, yo, you want to do this? You got to be in another city in four days. Like, that's it. I've seen an experienced through other people I know and myself, so many things like that. And there's this huge dividing line. I think some people don't have the risk tolerance for acting that fast, but I really think you need to be able to just pounce. When that thing happens, you recognize it and pounce. Absolutely. And you could say that about bands. Like I've seen bands who were like on the verge yeah, of getting a deal. I am talking um, about bands yeah. actually. <laughs> like yeah. I've seen bands primarily on the bands. verge of getting deals. It's their own worst enemy. Again, I think that's why a lot of my clientele, like they've survived, they've been through it. Like it's why I think, you know, when I talk about the, the communication and the work ethic kind of all working together, it's because they, they made it through. Like they know what it takes, you know, and there's a whole lot more than just wanting to be a rock star. Like, <laughs> oh, yes. Interestingly enough, you were talking about big fish in a small pond. I remember talking to, I don't remember if it was Paolo or Matt from Trivium. It was back when they cut drums at my studio with Colin back in like 2011. I remember I was talking to one of them and we were talking about bands who are faltering in their career, metal bands who then do a Hail Mary and like switch styles immediately and try to go commercial. And 
he was saying that he thinks it's the dumbest thing ever. And he was telling me why Trivium is going to stick the course in metal. Because they had just, at that point in time, right before In Waves, they had gotten a lot of shit for making uh, the album before that. I forget what it's called, but it was the one that sounded like Metallica. They got a ton of shit. They were doing well, but they were kind of hated and they knew it. The Shogun? No. No, Shogun came after, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. It was their second record. I mean, Matt just did an interview now talking about how they knew that they were that they were kind of hated at the beginning. So we were talking about it, and they were saying, no, we're sticking the course with metal. We're not going to jump ship and do that because the philosophy being, if you can't dominate a smaller market like metal, how the hell are you going to be able to dominate a larger market like radio rock? If you can't even handle this, how are you going to handle that? So they're going to stick the course with metal and wise decision because they're they've just been doing better and better and better and better. Yeah, they've they're like in my opinion, that's a band that's just hitting their stride right now. I agree. I actually te- texted Matt a couple of days ago and I was like, dude, you guys are incredible, and I don't even think you've done your best stuff yet. I think like they're still young and hungry but they're eight albums into their career. Like most bands when they've been around as long as them at this point are like cooked, you know, and just going through the motions. Like, I don't feel that like Trivium is not like that. Like they are just like, they're already like, dude, our next record, it's gotta be fire. You know, like they're like excited. And you know, Lamb is actually the same way. Like every record they're, they're like, and you know, this one in particular, there was like a new sense of urgency. Like this has got to be fucking fire. I've noticed that with producers too. Like, you know, we were talking about TLA or had Bob Clear Mountain on a couple months ago. Whenever I talk to people like that who have gone that far for that long, they don't have any signs of burnout. They're just as excited about it as they were at the beginning. I think that that's key. I've met a lot of people who do start to burn out. And by the time they've been in it, 15, 20, 25 years, they're kind of over it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because I had a buddy tell me the other day because I sent him a mix and I was like, dude, this is like the sickest thing I've ever done. And he's like, you say that every record. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the idea? I was like, well, I mean, I, I always wanted to be sicker than the last record because like, true story, hasn't been announced yet. This is my like least favorite thing. I just mixed a record that I am so fired up on and I'm, I mean, it's a worthless conversation because I can't talk about it, but I'm just super proud. Like, and it doesn't, I feel like it doesn't sound like anything else I've ever done, but it's just, I guess that's like the excitement about the job. Like I still get pumped on it. You know, like anyone who's worked with me would tell you I am voted most likely to throw my back out in the session because <laughs> I'll start headbanging or jumping around. Like, I love it, man. I have like such a good time. I don't think it's a worthless conversation. I actually think it's super cool that you get excited about things. Honestly, man, I think that that's, that's key. How are you going to do this job if you don't feel that way about it? As soon as we get off this conversation, I know Ted is mastering it right now. Oh, nice. <laughs> so like the second we hang up, like I'm going to be like waiting for that, <laughs> that email to come through. Now that is one dude who when he masters stuff, it doesn't sound that different than the mix if the mix is good. Yeah, Ted's great, man. I mean, listen, I've worked with so... There's a lot of great mastering guys that I've used quite a bit. I love Brad Blackwood. I love Ted Jensen. I love Brian Gardner. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of good guys. Um, it's funny. Like I don't actually get to pick the mastering guy that much often. This is what I'm noticing about myself. The labels, like there'll be trends of what labels want the team for me to be. 
You know, like there was a time after corn, perfect example. I think right around the time I mixed that the corn record, Serenity of Suffering. There we go. That was the name of the album. Is that the one with See, I'm I'm bad. Whatever. With names the one with rotting too, in vain so. on it. The the first one I missed. Yeah. When I mixed that record and I quote unquote mastered it, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I guess I did. But they that started a trend of people wanting me to master my own records. And I did uh the car bomb record that I mixed, which is a sick album if you've never heard it. Oh yeah, I've heard it. Carbomb Meta, I think is the one that I did. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Dude, that record, I remember when like they sent it to me, like laughing. Like like laughing giddy, like this is unreal, man. <laughs> like actually laughing with excitement on like what I had in front of me. Like that was really that record was actually inspiring. And they did the whole thing to like no click too. It was like absolutely amazing. Anyway, sidebar. After that, I like I think that was all around the time because I mastered I mixed and mastered that and then I mixed and mastered corn and then I mixed and mastered Killer Be Killed, which I was really stoked on that record too. And there was like a handful like right around that time where I ended up mixing and mastering all of them because not because I wanted to. I don't like call myself a mastering guy. I don't really care one way or the other about it. Like I'll always send client like my master and then the raw mix, which is really just my mix without the final limiter on it. But you know, my two bus is like one compressor. That's like, that's it. And then if I'm mastering it, it's a two bus compressor and a limiter. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> uh, I'll always just send somebody, you know, like I send everybody both. And I'm like, if you can use my master, if you want, you know, if you want to, or if you want to have someone else master it, knock yourself out. Like, I don't feel like it takes away from my cred if someone else masters. Like, it doesn't matter to me. It really doesn't. And honestly, I'm of the opinion, better is better. You know, like, please, like, I would prefer, like, I'll send you the master and think that I love it. And like, you know, in fact, like the record I just said to sent to Ted Jensen y yesterday, I send him my master and I'm like, beat it. Like, please, like that would be ideal. We all win. If it sounds better, everybody's winning. Certainly no ego about that kind of thing. The labels basically like, I'll get into trends where the labels will start requesting like either yeah. I do it and then I actually don't like doing it because also I just don't like the the maintenance of it. Like... I don't like getting involved with DDPs and things like that. It's just, this is extra like busy work that I don't want to do. I want to create, you know, and that doesn't feel like creating. It's just, it's a little tedious, I guess. But, but labels will come to me like, uh, like the sin in the sentence, the A&R guy right out of the gate when we were starting it. He's like, you're going to master it. We're not going to go through this whole thing. And I was like, what? Like, no, 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 let's get, some. he's like, no, no, that's it. We're not, <laughs> we're just, it's done. Okay. You know? So I just did, <laughs> but that's kind of, it just becomes trends. It's like whatever the, and, and I'm very happy to use, you know, any of those like, four or five guys that that I named. And it's not, there's probably a million other guys that I think do great work. It depends on whatever the label kind of steers it towards very often. Do you have a preference? On mastering guy? No, not on mastering guy, but on whether you do it or someone else does it. Not at all. No, I don't care one way or the other. So just whatever's better. Yeah. Like I, like I always send out my master in the raw mix and I'm like, you, you do what you want. Fair enough. Again, I don't, I shouldn't have to sell someone. And I hope that, you know, I, I tend to think that guys that like master for a living are probably better at it than I am. You know, like mine's just me cranking my mix up and I like my mix. So that, that works out great. But, you know, guys that have dedicated their whole life to probably just putting that final gliss on probably do a pretty good, darn good job. Some of them certainly do. Okay. So speaking of mistakes that producers make coming up, one thing that I've noticed is a lot of people will pigeonhole themselves before they've even 
discovered what they're good at or what their yeah what their what their sound is like i notice this especially with metal people they will not let themselves learn as much as they possibly can at the beginning because they want to do metal but then you know i'm talking to you who obviously you're career is very metal based now you did everything did you always want to end up doing metal or was it just i'm going to do whatever i can to do this and hopefully metal works out so it's funny i'm telling you the whole career arc in broken up pieces i'm working at soundtrack that's okay i like christopher nolan movies so yeah we're definitely doing it like yeah. a christopher <laughs> nolan movie so i'm like I worked my way through the ranks from Moffat Floors to become an assistant engineer to become a kind of a staff engineer at Soundtrack, right? And I kind of get to assist David Bottrell, Andy Wallace, different guys, you know, different guys that are mixing rock guys, you know, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra guys. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assisting on these rock gigs, but they were not nearly as many as like the hip hop and R&B gigs that were at Soundtrack. And then pop. You know, I always was into like rock, heavy rock, metal. Like, you know, I was a big, I was a big Sepultura fan growing up. Pantera, Metallica. I don't know what the right word is. I never really got into like the underground death metal kind of stuff, but I guess, what, what should I call it? The mainstream metal of... Uh, yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, that's the term, right? Mainstream metal, there we go. Yeah, sure. The the mainstream yeah. heavy bands, basically, yeah. And I kind of got into a little bit, I was a, I was a bit of a hardcore fan, like, because Hatebreed was from our my neck of the woods. So, you know, I was always at those shows and stuff and like into bands like Snapcase and stuff like that. So that's kind of where I, I was definitely into heavy music. How about that? But on the engineering tip, I enjoyed all music. Cause I, you know, when I was in high school and stuff, I was all into musical theater and singing in chorus. And, you know, I, I, I liked music. So I liked it all. Um, I liked to play heavy music. My band liked to play it, you know, but I didn't get into the, recording side of things thinking I can't wait to be a metal producer that didn't even cross my mind the whole genre like I just wanted to be the guy capturing the sounds and I didn't even use the word producer I didn't even know what a producer was you know I just thought I wanted to be like engineer mixer guy and so when I was at soundtrack I would take a bus back up to Maine and there was a great little studio called Disneyland and the guy had an old Neve in there and I would so on you know if I had like two days off or something I'd get like a local band up in Maine and I would take a Greyhound bus because I was broke as a joke back then. Soundtrack was paying me five fifteen an hour to mop floors midnight till eight in the morning. Living in New York City. It's the big money right there. I lived in, uh, I don't know if you know anything about New York, but I lived in like, up in like Inwood um, near the Bronx in a one bedroom apartment with four people. I know where that is. And it was a slum. Like the, the, the ceiling collapsed in the bathroom yeah. while we were living there. But we were all squatting. So like the landlord didn't have to fix it because he knew we were all illegal in there. <laughs> yeah, you were making it happen. They're like, no, man, I'm telling you, you do not understand. Those early days for me in New York were <laughs> rough. I don't even think like people around me, you know, like I, dude, thank God I met this, this uh, girl named Maysoon. She's actually like a stand-up comedian now and she writes for like an NBC show. Maysoon Zaid. She like befriended me. We met through like a friend of a friend. She's a like a um, she's a comedian that she does. She's a Muslim girl with cerebral palsy, and she does a whole lot of bagging on herself in her routines. She kind of really befriended me and kind of saved my life in New York because I didn't know how I was going to survive, and like I couldn't afford the dollar fifty ride on the train to get to work sometimes, and I would just start walking from Inwood, like straight down through Harlem, straight down through Times Square, like just. I'd just leave hours early 
and walked like the eight miles of, I had no friends. I had nothing else to do. Like I was literally going to walk like to 23rd street because I had nothing else going on in my life. And like May soon, about the time I was going to leave for work one night, she like pulls up beside me and she's like, there's no way you're walking. She's like, hop in the car. And she like, drive me to work, you know, like, or she, or we we're so many hours early. She's like, I'll take you out to dinner and then we'll go ride to work. I'm like, man, she, you know, take me to do laundry at her house. Cause I couldn't afford it. Like, I mean, this girl saved my life, man. She was amazing. And I met a cool group of friends there that kind of bailed me out. Anyway, way off topic. Soundtrack, Full Force came in. They're like a pop R&B hip hop producers. Um, they actually wrote Backstreet Boys, All I Have to Give, like one of the top six selling records of all time. And they wrote like uh, some sync songs and they had done some early work with Britney Spears. So they plucked me out a soundtrack and they're like, we want to make you our house engineer. And I'm like, whoa. Um, and at the time I was probably making $9 an hour. As, a, as an engineer at Soundtrack. They're probably billing me for like $70 an hour or something like that. Just out of curiosity real quick, how long into your time there was it before? I interned for nine months okay. before I became an assistant. Like basically doing janitorial work for like nine months. And then I turned into an assistant and then it's pretty blurred from then because you're still an intern, but you, they give you the low level assistant gigs, the clients they don't care about kind of thing. But then clients start requesting you back in fact, my very first engineering session was I had been assisting for a couple months on Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish. He was doing a solo R&B record back then. It was like right after Hootie. And I had been assisting on the session and they had flown, the, the producer was from LA and they had flown in his, he brought his engineer with him. It was crazy too. It was like a huge, the session was like crazy big budget, major label kind of thing. You could tell by the amount of, money and time we wasted and the producer had to go back to LA for something and he's like we'll be back in two weeks he's like you know what the engineer had been stealing the producer's snapples and the producer was like pissed <laughs> about the snapple thing like he was always like Josh didn't you order me snapples I'm like I did I put in there's a bunch in the mini fridge he's like there's none in there I was like okay okay I'll order more he's like man this motherfucker keeps stealing my snapples like it was like a thing he was getting like more and more angry about it. It's crazy what kind of things will get you a gig. <laughs> so then when uh, <laughs> when he's like, I'm going to come back, for, I'll be back from LA in two weeks and we'll finish this record up. And he's like, you got all this, right? You know how to do all this stuff. And I was like, yeah. He's like, cool. He's like, because I don't feel like flying the engineer back out from LA. Like, you'll just do it. And I was like, sick. But I was like, I don't think they're going to, they're going to let me. Like, there's so many guys ahead of me, you know, like at the studio, like en other engineers. And he's like, I'll tell them they're going to have to, or I'm not coming back. I'll go somewhere else. I'm like, all right, good luck with that. You know, like I'm, I'm staying out of this because I ain't trying to get on no soundtrack vacation. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> trying to avoid the, like <laughs> not getting a phone call. I needed the work, you know? And then like, I remember the, the manager calls me up from the studio and he's like, hey, the Darius Rucker record's going to be back in two weeks. And they said they just want to have you engineer. And I was like, okay. He's like, you think you can handle that? I was like, yes, sir, I can. He's like, all right, you got the gig. And that was my first engineering gig was tracking like, like my first, I shouldn't say my first engineering gig, but my first like big time engineering gig was tracking vocals with Darius Rucker. And it was sick. He was awesome. So how does it go from that to Lamb of God? Right. So I did, um, I got into the R&B world and then Full Force came in and they plucked me out. So I left. I totally left. I'd been working. I'd assisted Andy Wallace at that point on like a Seven Dust record and like handfuls of other records 
just as an assistant engineer. And then Full Force takes me out and we go to, I, they, we get a, a residential studio at Avatar. And I was there with, with them for two years straight, only doing pop, hip hop and R&B and loving it because it was so different for me. Towards the end of the two years though of doing that, I was still going up to Maine and kind of producing like a metal band that I was working with or like a rock band. You know, it was very kind of like system of a downy type of thing. So I was keeping my chops up, but my main gig was working with Full Force. We did a 3LW record. We did Little Kim. That's how I got my first plaque was for mixing that Little Kim song. Whatever. We did a ton of... That's the world that we were in. And then I hadn't been to Soundtrack. And I'd be, at that point, I'd kind of become friends. You know, obviously, I had tons of friends now at Soundtrack, like the staff and Andy Wallace and other engineers that worked there. And I was like, missing Andy and Steve. I hadn't seen them in a while and I happened to be walking down Broadway in New York and walked past Soundtrack. I was like, I'm just going to go up and say hi. So I go upstairs and, you know, is Andy in Studio G. I mean, he was every day, right? He was always mixing a record. We're talking like, yeah, like 2001 where he literally did every single song on the radio. Maybe 2002, three, something like that. I walk in and I'm like, hey, Andy, what's going on? He's like, hey, how you been, Josh? You know, I'm like, good. He's like, you still working with Full Force? I'm like, yeah, it's been going great because they, you know, they, they treat me real well and I love working with them, super creative. He's like, that's cool. Hey, you been doing much Pro Tools work? I was like, dude, I haven't touched a tape machine in like two years. <laughs> like, that's all I'm doing right now. He's like, Bob Marlette is producing. I think he did. I, I always mess this part of the story up because I don't actually remember. It was either Shinedown or Seether, something like that. One of those two bands at that time period. I suppose I could look up the credits and figure out which one Bob Marlette did, and that's the album. But he's like, Bob Marlette needs some drum editing tomorrow. Do you think you could handle that? I was like, sure. You know, I was on such a good terms of full force. I was like, I'll tell them I can't work tomorrow. They're like, "I'll, I'll come here tomorrow and do that. He's like, cool. So the next day I'm at Soundtrack editing drums. And... Bob Marlette turns to Andy and he's like, he's like the fastest Pro Tools guy I've ever seen. And he really knows what he's doing. And Andy's like, oh yeah, we love Josh. We love working with him, you know? And it was like an impassing conversation. And then the next day, I got a message from Andy's manager, who subsequently would become my manager, (laughs) saying, hey, Andy has to go out to LA to work on this system of a down record and he's going to need an editor. Are you up for it? And I was like, how long? Because I don't want to lose my full force gig. Like, they're my paycheck, right? Like, that's where my money's coming from. And they treated me well. And I was like, um, how long? And she's like, I don't know. It could be like three weeks or four weeks even. And I was like, I don't think I can do that. She's like, okay. All right. Well, you know, okay. You know, if that's... And I I knew this girl because I'd met her. Her name was Becky and she'd worked with... I'd met her through Andy several times. So I, you know, I was on a pretty good friendly basis with her. She's like, okay, all right. Sounds like she probably was not expecting that answer. She was not expecting that answer. And so then I'm hanging out with full force and I'm like, man, I don't want to lose this gig. Like I love working with these guys. And that's a one time. So I was trying to weigh my, do I take the one time gig on the system of a down thing? Or do I stay where I'm at where I've been for two years? That's really been great. And one of the guys in Full Force, his girlfriend, actually, we were talking in the hallway about it. And she's like, hold on a minute. (laughs) She's like, you're telling me that you told the guy you idolize, you don't want to go out (laughs) to LA and work with him? And I was like, no, I mean, I want to. I just, 
I don't want these guys to like hire someone else while I'm gone and then I'm fucked, you know? Like, she goes, oh my God, Josh. She's like, do not let these dudes fool you. They might tell you they'll slide someone in while you're gone, but they love you and would take you back no matter what. She's like, honestly, at the heart of it, do you want to be doing hip hop and R&B records? Or do you want to be working with your idol on some like hard rock metal records? And I was like, I want to be working with my idol on some hard rock metal records. She's like, get your ass out to LA. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I like called Becky back at, at, at AAM, my management. And I was like, hey, Becky, uh, I hope it's not too late. Like, do you think I could still go do that system of down thing in LA? She's like, man, I never told him you said no. I knew you were going to call back. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fascinating because... What if you had not decided to go say hi that day? Jeez, man. Well, you know, it's funny. I actually still, I did a track with uh, Jerry from Full Force, like not that long ago. Like I still keep in touch with him and he's still producing records and making beats and, you know, so I try to keep a foot in, in, in that world a little bit because it keeps me fresh. What I mean is like, what if you had not gone in to say hi to Andy that day? Oh yeah, right? Like, geez, like what? <laughs> yeah, like your life could be completely different right now. <laughs> right? You know, I watched a lot of The Flash. Maybe it, was, you know, it would have <laughs> happened and it's just a different timeline, but it still would have happened somehow. I don't know. Uh, as it turns out, that record ended up being the Steal This Album record and my whole job was to assemble it because they had tracked it on two inch and then they like dumped the two inches into Pro Tools, but they only had like one guitar track, the drums and the bass, and then... Rick Rubin and Serge had rearranged the structure of the songs in Pro Tools and made brand new songs out of it because they're all B-sides, right? And then when Andy went to mix it, he's like, um, I'm pretty confident there's more than one rhythm guitar track. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. So, you know, we start calling Sony and get into the archives and we find out that all... As in like there were two conflicting rhythms going on at the same time? No, as in there's a single guitar track in the Pro Tools session. Ah. Like one, no double. As in you didn't get all the files that you... Well, so they tracked Rhythm Live. That's how System of a Down does it, right? Like they they in a room. And once they did that, they transferred that live take that was the master take into Pro Tools. And then Serge went off with Rick to work on vocals. Yes. And then the guys finished the rhythms uh -huh. okay. on the two-inch tape at the same time. So vocals were getting done in Pro Tools, rhythms were getting done on tape. But that was when they did the, I don't remember what that album was for, because Steal This Album was just the B-sides of that, Toxicity, I guess it was the Toxicity B-sides. So when Rick and Serge rearranged the songs, it no longer matched up to the rhythms on the two-inch tape. You get what I'm saying? Like there's yes. massive arrangement yeah. changes. So what I had to do <laughs> was take the two-inch tape. Uh, that sounds complicated. <laughs> I had to take the two-inch tape and the Pro Tools sessions, and I'd like sync them up with a links like we talked about earlier and print the kick drum from both into a new Pro Tools session. And then, you know, I'd see it like going and it'd be locked up and they'd be, well, the one off the tape and the one in Pro Tools would be lined up perfectly. And then I'd see it drift. And I'm like, an edit was done here. Now I need to find what part of the song they found, like what part of the song they took to make this part of the song. And basically recut the rhythms from the tape to match the arrangements that were done on Pro Tools. It was a nightmare. <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. And it sounds to me like there's a lot of room for fucking it up. You know, it actually... Once I got into a rhythm, I remember it being pretty smooth. But the way that you recognized that, so did everybody else working on the record. And the fact that I was 
just kind of getting it done. Like I'm sure that went a long way with Andy. Because Absolutely. After that, his manager called me back and she's like, you know, Pro Tools was still kind of coming up then. Like not everybody knew it. She's like, Andy wants a full-time Pro Tools this guy. How would you feel about coming and just working with him full-time? And I was like, damn. I mean, yeah, I'm going to do it. You know, at that point, I knew I was going to do it. So I had to go back to full force and be like, and I found him a replacement. I found my own replacement. You know, I had a buddy. I was like, you know, he's a great engineer. He's going to do a killer job for you guys. And I got to do this, you know, like I just got to take this gig. And so I was working with Andy and then I'll get you to Lamb of God. It was, uh, (laughs) it was, uh, I was working with Andy on, so now I'm just his Pro Tools guy. So I'm working on a bunch of records with him for a long time. We were in the middle of doing Fuel, Natural Selection. And he turns to me and goes, or he turns to the band and he's like, hey, I can only work till Friday. So there's going to be three or four songs that don't get mixed. Um, I'm just not available after Friday. But Josh here is great. And he'll finish up the rest of this record. And I was like, jaw on the floor. What? (laughs) (laughs) Had you mixed stuff like that before? Yeah. Again, we're doing the Christopher Nolan thing. Yeah. Okay. So The way I originally met Andy is, remember I told you I was sneaking up to Maine and recording bands while I was mopping floors. Yep. On the days where I wasn't mopping floors, I would bring the two inches back from Maine and go into soundtrack overnight and mix. That's how I learned to use an SSL. So I would mix overnight my own projects, just kind of sneak in there and like use the studio. And I was producing bands. And So that's what you meant by keeping your chops up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was just kind of, I would sneak up there and, and one night, late at night, I was mixing and I was kind of cranking back my final mix. I turn around and Andy was standing in the doorway behind me. And I knew him from around the studio, but we weren't, you know, we weren't close at the time. And he was like, did you do this whole thing? I was like, yeah. He's like, this is really good, Josh. Like really good. Do you mind if I shop this around to some people? And I'm like, hell no, dude. Like, you kidding me? And uh, that's actually how we, before I was working with him, Cause that happened before I, you know, I'd assisted him like maybe once or twice, I think at that point. So I like, we were friendly, but certainly not, I wouldn't have walked up to him with a demo or anything at that point in my career, you know, but he just happened to walk by the studio and hear what I was working on and be blown away. Actually, I think it was Cisco told him to come, his assistant, Steve Cisco, who mentored me and taught me a lot. Steve Cisco was like, uh, you got to go to Studio E and listen to what Josh is doing in there. Cause he's got something cool up on the board. And then, uh, you know, Andy had kind of shopped it around to some labels and stuff and you know, that didn't work out when we were talking about self-destructive bands. That was the a prime example of it. But years later... But years later, it laid the groundwork. He felt confident enough to... Yeah, he knew I knew. Yeah, pass you off to a major label band. Yeah, and that, I mean, that was big because that record got nominated for a Grammy for Best Engineered Non-Classical. It was like one of the first things I'd ever mixed for a record label. <laughs> and it's nominated for the Best Engineered. I went to the Grammys, the whole deal, man. Like, I was fired up. It was uh, surreal and see my name come up on the board and it was like, you know, fuel, natural selection. How old were you? 25, I don't know, something like that. Young. Yeah, it was pretty wild, man. It was awesome. I mean, it's it was a great time period for sure. Did you have moments where you're like, is this actually happening? No, I'm more there now than I was then. How so? As I'm getting older, it's easier for me to reflect a little bit more. You know, I think having kids does that to you a lot, you know, and having conversations like this. Because when I was in it, I was just in it. You know, like I'm just in the thick and working as hard as I can and not looking back. You know, I'm just sprinting. And no time to reflect. Just no, no. Execute, and, execute, execute. Yeah. And it's more like now when I'm like, 
damn. Because so shortly after that, um, another one of my huge heroes is Garth Richardson, right? Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, if back then, I mean, I'd do it today. If, uh, if the record, I'd flip over records, that a band I'd never heard of. If it said produced by Guga Garth and mixed by Andy Wallace, I was buying that shit. I don't care what band it is. That was like a winning combo. I still think that. They're both still rock stars in my opinion. And Garth was uh, also managed, had the same management as me back then. And uh, he, they, I, you know, people kind of like, were like, Andy's been working with this kind of young upcoming guy who knows his stuff. And he was like, what do you want to come up and mix um, some, this new band that I'm working with, Atreyu? And so, well, that's cool. My first major label mix was one I didn't get credit for. That a producer stole credit for me. Um, I was so mad about it. I was like an intern at Soundtrack, and overnight I mixed a song for R and B guy, and I got no credit. But the producer credited himself for the mix. I was furious. But I, what was I going to do about it? It was over and done. But the first like mix, mix, I think like major label mix was either Three LW or Little Kim, one of those two. That was like my my first two, and then after that. It was like fuel. <laughs> and then after fuel, it was a Treyu because I went up and mixed the curse for Garth Richardson. And I mixed the whole record in like four days. It was crazy fast. Did you have any nerves? The reason I'm asking about nerves is, I mean, it sounds like you were all in, but it's very different to be getting handed a mix in the genre that is your genre from your hero versus working on stuff that might be big, but it's not really your world. Uh, it's, I think it's much more of a personal, it's like a personal thing to be in that Andy Wallace situation where Andy's handing you the mix. Like, did it freak you out at all? Or were you just like, fuck it, I've got this. I don't remember actually being, I mean, I wanted the clients to be as happy as they were with Andy's stuff. Well, I mean, that in and of itself sounds pretty scary. That was the pre- that was the only pressure I felt. But like, actually, uh, my manager, who had been and still is Andy Wallace's manager for all those years, I talked to him about it one time. I was like, "Man, like this is a lot. Like this is this is a lot of pressure." And he's like, "Why is it pressure?" I'm like, "What do you mean? Why is it pressure? Like Andy's been mixing their record. He's fucking phenomenal. And now like they're gonna have me do it. Like, well, what if they don't like it as much as they like Andy's?" He's like, well, they're not supposed to like it as much as they like Andy's. <laughs> and I was like, what? He goes, you have nothing to lose. Like, no one is actually expecting it to be as good as Andy Wallace. And it was a weird thing that kind of put me at ease. Like, if they've agreed to let you do it. It's good enough. That, that you're there. You know what I mean? Like, they're confident that you can pull it off. If we're confident, you know what you're doing. Don't think about it has to be as good as Andy Wallace's. It's not supposed to be. He's been mixing records for 20 years longer than you. And if he felt good enough to offer it to you, then yeah, what's the problem? Well, he also hired me to produce his son's band back then. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that happened first. I should, I should say, while it was being his Pro Tools engineer, he hooked me up with his son's band at the time. His son's like a badass drummer. And was in a really cool band and he he was like I want you to record my son's band. Actually, that was a lot of pressure. I probably felt more pressure on that than I did on anything else. Just because it was the first time? I mean, I was he was like legitimately like hiring me, <laughs> you know, like and for something personal. That was probably more pressure that particular scenario. As it turns out, like I mean, I made great friends on that session. The, 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 all those guys were 
awesome to work with. Sounds to me like you don't get freaked out too much, or if you do, you know how to you know how to bury it and just move forward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely get stressed out. Like I think every every record, I'm always trying to be better than my last one. So I definitely run myself through the paces. That's for sure. I'm bringing this up because uh, lots of people reach out to me, you know, listeners, URM students, whatever, and they bear their souls a lot. And one of the things that people bring up a lot is uh, how do you overcome the fear of failure? Like, how did you not get in your own way? And with all the stuff you've done, my philosophy has always been, fuck it. Like, it doesn't, yeah, it might be scary, but fuck it. Like, what am I going to do? Not try? That's not even an option. It sounds like you kind of take that same mentality. Like, it, yeah, maybe it's pressure. Maybe it's scary. Maybe it could get fucked, but whatever, doing it. At the end of the day, that's what makes us professionals, right? Like, or, I mean, you could put that on any profession. Like, everybody has professional stress. One thing people don't realize about this job if you remodel kitchens, chances are everybody that walks in the house would be like, it's a brand new kitchen. It doesn't even matter if it's your style or not, right? Like someone's going to walk in and be like, wow, ooh, this place looks great. You know, like that's the end of the discussion. And when you put out a record, everybody has an opinion. And especially now. <laughs> especially now. And more importantly, everyone, whatever it is, you ever like hang out with someone who's like first year film school student and they'll tell you why like <laughs> fucking Transformers sucks. Or like, yes. or tell you why Iron Man is a piece of shit movie. And <laughs> yes. when I hear statements like that, I'm like, oh my God, dude. <laughs> I mean, that's that's cool that you got a camera and you know, like maybe you got a great eye for cinematography, everything. If you even think for a second, you can comprehend what goes into making a movie like Iron Man or any other fucking massive blockbuster movie that has like more political ropes to jump through and navigate than a record does by any means. Think how long we take making a 10 song album. Like, are you kidding me? A movie? It's got like a thousand people working on it. A thousand people, like all trying to keep track of all of it. And like, it's okay to not like those movies. I'm not saying you got to like them, but if you want to be a professional in the film industry, you can't look at a movie like that and think like, pfft, I could do so much better. Like, get the fuck out of here, man. Like, it's the height of delusion. It's the height of delusion. Like, you can't even, are you kidding? Like, were you the, even the top of your film class? You know, like to, to get to that level, you got, you got an idea of what's going on. How about that? Like, and, and maybe, you know, I don't know anything about these directors, so, you know, like maybe Michael Bay wants to make like indie films and do like these like single camera shoots and stuff like that. Like maybe in his own personal preference. Again, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just making up a theoretical situation. Actually, he he's tried it. And apparently I've researched him. Are you going to ruin my analogy? <laughs> I just want to say that he, well, no, he tried it. And in the middle of making a movie like that, he reverted back to the style he's known for. So I think he is who he is. That's even better. That's actually better. But my theory was like, let's say like someone has like, uh, I'll just go to talk about myself even easier. So when I make a record, like there's definitely things that records that I like the sound of that I've done better than other records, you know, like, and there's amps that I much prefer over other amps. But when I'm working with a particular artist, if their vision is a certain way and they want to do things a certain way, like it's not 
my job to force the artist into my picture. It's my job to make the artist's picture the best it can be. Yes. If I'm making a Lamb of God record, we use Mark IV's amps, like every single one. And they get treated differently every single time or whatnot. But at the end of the day, like it always sounds like Lamb of God. In fact, we've been pulling up tones, Mark Morton and myself, for on uh, Sturm and Drang, actually. He was like, we had some amp up and we were like listening to the guitar. And like, Mark was like, God, this sounds sick. You know, like we're just geeking on it. And I was like, I love it. I mean, I love it. I love it. Then he's like, all right, can I just put up my Mark IV for a second? I was like, yeah. He plugs it in and we are reamping just to make sure the performance, we're comparing apples to apples kind of thing. And we like run it through the Mark IV and he's listening back to it and I'm listening back to it. He goes, I mean, the other one might sound great, but this one sounds like me. <laughs> and I was like, it does. Absolutely. Like it undeniably sounds like you. He's like, let's keep it. I like it. And I was like, all right, fuck it. That's what we're doing. There's an identity to it, you know? So anyway, what all I'm saying is if I'm making a record, like I might have a preference that's slightly different than ours. It doesn't mean I don't try to steer it into something that could be better because I absolutely do. But at the end of the day, the bands that are going to succeed are going to carve out a little spot where they sound original, you know? Like otherwise it's just plug and play and nobody even really cares. I think that the same way that you don't need to try, in your opinion, you shouldn't have to argue to get your point across musically. I think that you also probably shouldn't have to try to get your style across because your ears and your brain are still what's creating that mix at the end of the day. You're yeah. the one who's producing it. So even if you are you know, helping the artist be the best version of themselves, still going through your filter. Absolutely. Anyone in the room, it goes through their filter. Yeah, exactly. So no matter what you do, it's still going through you. That's a great point. So you don't have to even try to make it you. It already is going to be you. That's true. That's very true. That's a great point. You know, another thing that's like, if we're talking about metal in particular, that defines like different records, the kick drum sound trends. <laughs> so there's some metal records where the kick drum sounds like a straight dance kick, like, like straight, <laughs> like there's nothing, you did a good about, job with that. nothing about it that remotely sounds like a real bass drum. And then there's other ones that are like typewritery. And then there's other ones that like have like the hollow, which to me is kind of the more like old school, you know, like a, like a hollow kind of basketball-y empty kind of kick drum. And I'm not going to argue whether any of that is better than anything else because I don't think it actually matters. That is a great way to decide what your record's going to sound like because that will really, def that and the snare will define the entire drum tone and almost date it in another way. Okay, so if you're saying that that's one of the ways that you're going to define your record, but it also doesn't matter, how do you reconcile that? I'm No, I'm saying so to myself, exclusive to myself. I guess I bring this up because a lot of kids will ask me like, what is your kick drum sample? So like there's just one way to do everything. Yeah, like that's the craziest kind of question I always get. Like, And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't use the same thing. I mean, there might be a handful of things that I like circle back around to from time to time, but it's never the same. It is never the same. If you listen to the Car Bomb record, it's like this super... In, in my mind, when I was mixing that, I was like, man, this sounds to me, and it doesn't sound anything like it, but it's what my memory thought it sounded like. <laughs> I was like, this sounds like Pantera meets Slipknot, sonically. Vulgar Display of Power meets the first Slipknot record. I don't, it might not sound anything like that, but that was my mental vision when I was doing it. And it's the same thing. It has like that really like hollow, like kind of basketball-y 
kick drum, which I like a lot. But a lot of guys, I've like mixing a record and, and most natural kick drums kind of have that quality to it. So if I start using the real kick a lot, you know, I'll end up with that quality to it. And so every once in a while, you know, I'll be mixing a record and someone's like, can it just, it's like the kick drum isn't powerful enough or it's not this enough. And it, like your definition of powerful and mine might be totally different. So actually Phil from All the Remains was the first guy I worked with that knew exactly right coming in when we were working on the record. He's like, why do kick drums on modern metal records sound like dance kick drums? And I was like, I don't know. That's like, people do it. Like, that's part of it now. <laughs> like, that's the way, <laughs> you know? And I've done it too. You know, it's just whatever. And Phil's like, I hate that. Can't it just sound like a big old drum? And I was like, I know what you want. And then I put that in on, and, you know, made the kick drum sound more like a live kick that's got some air around it type of thing. I guess that's a better word to say, air around it rather than just like like a thwack, you know? And Phil right away was like, this is exactly what it's supposed to sound like. <laughs> How deep do the conversations go before a record when you're trying to make sure that you understand their vision? Like, I know that you were saying earlier that uh, you'll be getting the demos far in advance and sending back your notes. But when it comes to knowing the direction things are going to go in, like when you're in the moment with the band, is it a conversational thing or how, how does that come about? That's a great question. So every record's different. Trivium, for example, those dudes knew exactly what they came in with their songs and like they know exactly what they want it to be. They know their songs are pretty much in the genre that they were, you know, they're not, they. Matt has a vision. Yeah. On the two records that I worked on, well, Paulo too is a huge part of that. But Corey, Paulo, and Matt are definitely like a perfect team. They know exactly what they want. And Alex is just as equal, perfect part of the team. I, I say the other three just because they're the original three. But like, they are pretty united and always on the same page of what they want to have happen. Then, so like on, on Trivium, I think we kind of just know what we want to do. That's a weird thing to say, but like we kind of fell into working with each other because we just kind of found out we agreed on a lot. So that made it simple. It makes sense to me. It's kind of like when you're in a relationship with somebody and you don't have to try because it just works. The puzzle pieces fit. That's a great way to say it. So like this last Lamb record was more just an emphasis on, I think we just took longer than we ever have on developing the songs. And I also think that's like painfully obvious when you listen to the record because like every Lamb record, we're always like, sometimes it's been a label mistake. There's a song or two that ends up on the record that was not supposed to be on the record. Whoops. That has happened twice. But it's not on the record. It's like there was one song that we were just not supposed to go on and by the end, everyone was so fried and the label like added it to like an iTunes exclusive or like a B-side for something and like some song that nobody likes ended up on like iTunes or something like that. We're like, oh my God, dude. That's what we get for burning each other out. (laughs) (laughs) No one like signing off on the final thing. No, but this particular Last Land record, like everybody everybody took a long time and being like, we like these songs. We whittled it down from like 25 songs. And there were direction conversations for sure. In fact, in particular, it's funny, Resurrection Man has been getting a lot of, just a lot of positive feedback. And the funny thing about that particular song is it wasn't written for the record at all. It didn't exist when we got together to pre-pro. That song strictly came about I had charted out all the song titles and like what we were doing and we're just kind of talking about creating the record at this point. I was like, well, we got a lot of speed, you know, and we've got this, we got kind of the groovy tune here. I'm like, we don't really have anything like a, like a vigil, like a slow kind of dirty, heavy, slow song. Like we, we need that tune. And on the spot, Resurrection Man was written. So 
I guess every, like I'm saying, I guess I'm saying every band is a little bit different in how they approach it. A more difficult one though, because you know, Lamb of God kind of knows what they do. So like, we know the scope of it for the most part. But take a band like Of Mice and Men, that was actually like a very serious conversation that we had to have right out of the gate because they have like radio hits, like very big, like pop songs for the most part, you know? I mean, like alternative, I should say, not pop, but like they have like big alternative songs. And I mean, Aaron is like an amazing singer. He can sing anything and he screams great. So when I get hired to make a record and their catalog, you know, they got like super heavy stuff and then they got like big, like mainstream hits. That's actually a more difficult spot for me because I'm like, okay. And you've had a success with both, you know, like all the remains, you could say the same thing about them. Like they've, they've had success in, in the active rock world and they've also had success in the metal world. So when you get into a record like that, it's way more difficult because you're like, whoa, what do you want to do? You know? And then you have to have an open conversation about it. Like, and you know, like with the mice and men, they're like, we want to make a heavy record. That's the plan. I'm like, all right, if that's the plan, then let's focus in on these tracks. And if it's, you know, this other song over here might be great, but it's certainly going to skew the record more in this direction. If we want it to feel heavy, we got to lose this song and this song and then do this one. Is there an added kind of pressure when you take a band that is a big radio band and they want to maybe go heavy, maybe possibly do things that could jeopardize them a little bit? You know, I don't try to make that call for the band. Fair enough. I want to help them succeed in whatever they decide to do. And I might think that they're capable of doing one or the other. But at the end of the day, if you're going to make a call like that, and there are people that feel differently than me on this, but it's it's one thing if like, uh, and the Bison Man is a good example, again, just because they've done both. But they, it was my job to steer it heavy. And I did. And at times it started going the other way. And, you know, I would try to steer it back. But I did that because I was, we had decided at the beginning that that was my job. You know, like we want to make a heavy record. So I try to keep us on that path. If a band, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one, man. If a band decides that they want to take a left turn and just go all of a sudden like mainstream, I think that really comes down to if they got the song to do it. Because actually we've had this discussion just because a song, like this, a lot of metal bands make this mistake. Just because a song has singing, it doesn't mean it's going to be a radio hit. <laughs> and I wish I could get that across to most people. <laughs> like, they're like, no, 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 that's going to be like a single because we're like singing. I'm like, that's not going to do shit because it's not a slam dunk song. Like, <laughs> it's not an exclusive. As long as we're singing, <laughs> it's a home run. No, that's not how it works at all. So could you, actually hurt you. <laughs> it, yeah. You have to decide if you like the song enough to stand behind it if it's an album cut. You know, like that's like a, and then like, then that becomes a cold conversation with the label too. Like if all of a sudden they're like, we want to push this as a single. And you're like, no, 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 no. It was never the intention. We just made a thing that we like over there. Because labels will make that mistake, same mistake. They're like, yeah, it's singing. It's a single. (laughs) Like, no. I imagine, I'm speaking from experience here that that can be very frustrating dealing with the labels when they have an idea about how the marketing should go versus what the vision is supposed to be. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But when they get it wrong and it's not what it was supposed to be, that's a shitty situation and you're kind of at the mercy of what they choose. So like, how involved do you let yourself get? I actually haven't had a ton of experience with that. Most of the, again, 
You know, like most of the bands that I work with have all the creative freedom that they want. Because they earned it. Yeah, I haven't had actually had to deal with that as much as you might think. It, most of the... The label, Lamb, Lamb of God doesn't turn in a record. I mean, the label just gets the record when it's done. There's no discussion. They don't, the label doesn't hear anything in the process and the work. They get the mastered record at the end and they release it. They might come by the studio and check it out, but Lamb of God has 100%, it's like Tool, you know, like they have 100% creative freedom. They make the record they want to make. Trivium is pretty much the same way. They just make the record they want to make. Um, and honestly, most bands really are at the end of the day, if they realize it, because at the end, you know, and the label might push. I'm making it sound like I don't have any say in this kind of stuff, but I, I have gone to bat for things that I believe in with bands before so hard that we've had blowout screaming matches. It has happened. I can't pretend like I, it's, it's not always roses for sure. I've been in serious heated discussions with certain band members before. Just trying to remember at the end of the day, we're both fighting for the same thing because we care. That tends to help. You know, like when you can remind yourself, it's like what you said, it's like in a relationship, you're arguing because you care and you want it to be good. I mean, sometimes those arguments are necessary. I think there's a big difference between an argument and a fight. Sure. Yeah. When the stakes are high, everybody's got a lot on the line. It's important shit. There's going to be arguments about where and what to do with certain things. But I, I think that that's just a natural thing. I got into it with one band in particular, a very big band, and I stuck to my guns so hard. What did they want? There was a particular song that, in my opinion, it just wasn't where it needed to be. It was very, very, very good, but I didn't feel like it developed properly. And I also thought it left out some very signature parts of what that band does. Okay. And that's a funny thing. Like a lot of times you work with a band and what they think their signature is and like what people actually think of that band are two different things. You know, like that's the one great thing about being the outside, you know, the producer on the band, the, re the record is you like, you can step back and be like, this is your thing. Whether you realize it or not, this is what people love about you, you know? So let's not, let's make sure we, or at the very least, let's make sure we include some of this. You know, in this particular band, like we got into it over a part in the in the song where I was like, when we were in the studio tracking, I was like, this song just doesn't quite go where it needs to. It gets up, it's this just huge climb, 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 climb. You're just waiting for this climax, and then it just kind of levels out and then goes out. And you're like, w what just happened? <laughs> I was like, it yeah. needs a part that kind of like builds up to this and then cuts to halftime and has kind of this feel. And I didn't. I didn't play any notes. I didn't do it. I was just like, it needs to have this kind of drop from this feel to this feel. And I kind of, you know, hummed a little thing. And immediately one of the band members was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we doing whatever we could go. And they, the band immediately just starts playing it. Like almost like it clearly needed to go in that direction. It just fell out of them. Once I said it, you know, like I was the spark, but they did it. Yep. Which is like, to me, a home run producer moment. Yeah. That's like the definition of the job right there. Exactly. So it happened. It happened for the most part, organically with the, the right push. Song clearly is going to be a single. Like, label's freaking out on it. Everything's great. Band member after the fact comes back to me and they're like, we got to cut that whole middle section out. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> what? We just, we don't think it came from us. We think it came from you. It's got to be from us. And I was like, hold on a second. Hold on a second. This is like the climax of the song. And you wrote it. Don't, don't think for a second. <laughs> like... <laughs> I wasn't holding the guitar. I wasn't like sitting behind any, like you did it, you know, like, and it came out so naturally. 
and it's clearly the climax of this whole thing. Like, we cannot get rid of this. We went back and forth on that. I'm talking, I went head-to-head with this band. Like, we battled on it. Like, it lasted weeks. And there were several versions of the songs floating around. It was like a big deal. And I did what I've never done in my entire career. And I ganged up and I got the management and the label. And I was like, help me stop this band from hurting themselves. <laughs> like, <laughs> help me help them make the right call here. And, you know, like one of the guys in the band actually saw, like, was like, this is good. This is like, and the other guy was like, no way. And, you know, it was like, eventually, it's probably the only time in my career I've like battled to the point where I lost, if you know what I mean. Did the part get cut? No. It made it in the song. Thank God it did. And it was a huge, huge, huge song. So what do you mean that you lost? I didn't work with the band again. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, so lost the war. I won, won, won the, battle, the battle, lost the war. Lost the war. <laughs> yeah. You roll the dice on that kind of stuff, you know? Man, you hear that story though. Like I remember Corey Taylor in an interview many years ago talking about how much they hated Rick Rubin and because he made him re-record all the vocals on their third album. And they talked so much shit, but it was their biggest record. And then afterwards, I remember them talking about how they didn't appreciate how great he was until many, many years later. That's just how it goes sometimes. I think uh, when you're creating stuff at that level with people that are that charged up, I mean, those bands don't get there by accident. Like, they're, no, no. Yeah, they're where they are because there's some very, very strong personalities creatively and also just like as far as like alpha assertiveness goes. Like they, they have to be that way. So you're going to clash at some point. The funny thing was is me and this guy ran into each other. Well, not run into each other. We stayed very cool, like super cool with each other. And um, <laughs> a co- after the record came out and was like, overwhelmingly like hailed like people loved it i went out and caught him at a show uh, caught the guys at a show and the dude comes up to me and he's like josh and i'm like hey and we gave each other a big hug and he's like i'm sorry <laughs> and i was like no i'm <laughs> sorry and he's like no i'm sorry and i'm like okay and we had like a big hug it out it was funny and i was like so we doing another one he goes i'm not there yet and i was like okay <laughs> you know i mean had the song failed maybe uh a different story no, no, no. That, that one's still in the set. <laughs> I mean, like you said, your job is to fulfill their vision, but I think nowhere in the job description does it say at their expense, you know? Like you're not yeah. supposed you're not supposed to let the band hang themselves basically. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's I mean it's it's a strong statement to say they would have hung themselves had they not done it, but I'm this I'm rarely that conf- like fair I enough. I shouldn't say I'm rarely that confident, but uh I mean, I was, sometimes it's worth fighting for. And I, I tell people that all the time when I work with them. One of the first conversations I have with any band is like, listen, we are a team and I will never forget that we're a team. And I need you to remember that we're a team so that when we do get to a sticking point, like you understand that there has to be a dialogue and we'll get there because sometimes the answer, if I come to you and I'm like, this isn't good enough and I present you with a solution, I honestly don't give a fuck if you use my solution or not. Solve it. I'll, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll give you a solution. Like, here, you can do this and this will fix it for me. But if you don't want that, that's okay. Just come up with another way to solve it. I think I have that conversation probably more than anything else when I'm working on a record. I think that 
that's maturity to be able to say it doesn't matter if it's my idea. Just we need something that works here. Yep. I think lots of times people get too hung up on their own idea when in reality they're just trying to they just want something better there. That's what everybody ultimately wants, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually thought of another funny Buster Rhymes story when I I got involved with the whole Buster Rhymes crew because again, Pro Tools was still coming up and it was new. And he was like on the Anarchy record, he did everything on tape back then. And uh, on the Anarchy record, he had like 80 or 90 minutes of material and he wanted it all on the record. And the CD is only 80 minutes long, I think, I'm pretty sure. You had to get like the extent, they're usually like 74 minutes or whatever. Anyway, he, he had way too much material and he wanted it all on the record. How does that work? He booked the studio solely to have me take all the final mixes and cut them as tight as I can. Like literally bump one song into the other, like on the beat without the like four bar outro or whatever. Like literally trying to find a way to slam 17 songs or something onto a CD, right? So this is like one another one of my early engineering gigs. So you know, I'm just being like a digital editor basically. But that process meant I would edit together and it's like 80 minutes of material, 90 or 85 minutes of material. And he's like, yo, I don't know. I don't know what song to cut. Like, it's all fire, man. And I was like, yeah, it's, you know, I don't know. And I learned right away, do not give your opinion on what song should be cut. Because every once in a while, <laughs> someone from the label or management would come in and be like, you know what you really should do? This is the one that we should cut. And he's like, which one? Yo, Josh, play that one. Because they're all in the Pro Tools like line. You know what I mean? He's like, which one? Yo, play that one. So I fire off that song. And he'd like start like mean mugging while he's headbanging. Just like, uh, uh, staring at the A&R guy. Not breaking eye contact. Headbanging and like just looking through his soul with his hand on the volume knob, bobbing his head and turning it up <laughs> louder and louder. And then like till it's screaming loud. And then he's just like... <clears throat> you want to get rid of this? This? How are you gonna cut this? Like, <laughs> and then like you just watch people like back down. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I was thinking about like, why? <laughs> yeah, he's like, and then he'd get all bummed out. He'd be like, oh, I don't know what to do, right? And he's, the, you know, the and our whoever would be like, yeah, I, I don't know. What are you gonna do? That's t- it's tough, man. And he's like, all right, just Josh, just play the whole thing. And I'd be like, oh my god, boom, start of the record. He listened to the whole eighty minutes, top to bottom this would happen like four or five times a day. And like, as soon as he's like, just play the whole thing. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> I just got to step out of the room, let this thing run for the next 85 minutes. <laughs> so when you oh, okay. To- so at least you didn't have to sit there the whole time. No, no. I would walk out after the first time through it. I was like, this is getting ridiculous. But anybody who came in, he'd like stare him down and like head bang him into submission. It was pretty funny. <laughs> so <laughs> they, did a whole- song get cut? Yeah, well, he eventually cut a deal that that record is 80 minutes long. It's like the extended 80-minute CDs, and they did cut okay. one song because they couldn't clear the sample. So the pro- the question, I think I got solved for him. The other point, <laughs> oh, that was right. That was the whole quote from the whole session. He's like, he's like looking at the, the guy who was telling him what song to cut, and he's like just staring at him, and he goes, I don't even know why you're talking right now. Your whole brain pattern is lurched. <laughs> <laughs> fucking great he was fun it's like a trick question almost when the (laughs) artist asks what song should i cut like it's just like presenting you with a grenade to blow yourself up with it's a tough one it depends on the artist my buddy was working with pharrell as an assistant and he was like 
they'd listen to the whole record. And Pharrell like turned to the label at one point. This is all hearsay, but I trust the source. He was like, he turned to the label and he was like, I don't know about this song. And they're like, no, 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 it's good, it's good. And he turned to the, the assistant in the room and he was like, you like this song? And he goes, eh. And he's like, that's enough. It's not going on the record. Like the fact that the assistant just kind of was like, eh, it's okay. And he's like, that's it. It's not going on the record. A friend of mine, professional soldier, lifelong, and he does counter-terror stuff, relates to this. And he told me that they have this philosophy that when there is a doubt, there is no doubt, basically. Yeah. That's their operating <laughs> philosophy. So I, it's kind of the same kind of the same thing. There is a doubt. There is no doubt. So I feel like someone's eh, reaction, that's the answer you need. I've also heard of people losing record deals or business opportunities that way when they'd get offered something or asked to describe what they do and they kind of meh it because they don't sure. feel very secure talking about their thing, whatever it is, or, yeah, you know, the question is why, why is your band different or why should I invest in your company that, you know, that kind of question and not giving a very strong answer. And I've heard of people losing the, the opportunity right then and there because of the meh kind of response. You know, early in my career, you would ask me about the, you know, my confidence in things. And I saw a great diagram that was like, your knowledge on the topic and like the less you know of it, you're like, I'm an expert. And oh, I yes. feel like early I was on that team. Like I fucking know everything about doing everything. And then like the more you learn about something, you're like, I know nothing about this. Like you humble yourself into being like, there's still so much to learn. And I think like that's, that's the arc that like got me through. Cause in the beginning, you know, I just had all the confidence in the world and, but always thinking I could be better. And as long as you stay on that path, by the end, you know, like or by the end, hopefully not the end, but hopefully if you keep reaching and you're still trying to get to the next level, you know, that's the tricky thing about this business. Like nobody ever talks about, nobody, I've had kids, I've done like a, like a, you know, went up and spoke to a college and stuff. And I've had kids say like, um, when did you know you made it? Like, what the fuck does that even mean? Did I make it? I don't even know what that means. Like, it, to me, that's a weird question because... The fact that you don't know what it means, I think, says everything. The thing is, is when you're in the entertainment business, you're always pushing the bar while you're navigating the business. So you never reach your goal. It never happens. In fact, uh, the guy from Dead Poetic, I mixed a Dead Poetic record years ago. And when the singer left the band, he had written, it was like in MySpace days, he wrote like a little blog about it. And I remember him talking about that. Like, you never get to where you want to be in this business. You will never get there. Because you're always, like Metallica, one of the 25 million, 30 million records world, you know what I mean? Like one of the biggest selling records of all time. And you know goddamn well when they make a new record, they're still trying to top it. And whether they achieve it or not, it's not the point. The point is that they're trying to. I think also it always feels like a house of cards. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because you also hear like super successful actors saying that too. Like dudes that are worth like a hundred million dollars who have been in like all these blockbusters will still talk like it could all just fall apart sure. the next day. And I feel like anyone in the entertainment business who gets too comfortable is asking for trouble. So there's what you just said of you're always pushing the bar and then there's always like 
the idea that it could go away tomorrow, which forces you to push the bar also. I think about that all the time. It's very real. It is very real, man. Like in like if I don't have something on the horizon, then I'd be then I'll stress, you know, like I try to always have something in the pipeline. Like I feel like I'm fortunate to be in the situation that I'm in and I've worked hard to be here. But I also recognize that I feel like if I ever take my foot off the gas or I try to phone in a record, you know, like because I've seen other people do that. I have seen it ha- I've seen it happen. You know, where someone's like, I'm okay, this is it. I'm in cruise control now. I just go into this mode and like, you can't. You got to treat every record like it's your last one. So I know you don't remember this, but I do. So I'll remind you. (laughs) When we talked over Skype that one time back in 2012 or 11 about you coming down to record those drums, we were just talking about- What was it for? Lamb of God. Oh, okay. And it didn't happen, obviously. We were talking about- what you had going on next and you didn't have anything booked for like four months. I remember this specifically and you were stressed. I remember <laughs> that. Yeah. You, you didn't have anything after that record. Obviously it all worked out, but I, I remember talking to you and I remember you being stressed. That's funny because particularly after I would imagine that would have been wrath. I'm kind of guessing. I think so. Yeah. So, <laughs> Things got wild after Wrath because, you know, that was a big production for me. I had mixed a lot of records at that point. It's kind of weird how, like, I did it a little bit backwards, you know? I kind of became, like, this mix guy because I did, like, you know, like I said, a trade with the Curse and Haste the Day and the Fuel Thing and Puddle of Mud. And all of a sudden, I was doing, like, these, like, mixing these records. And then um, I had engineered on a bunch of records. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to step into, like, the production role. And I had produced things on my own, you know, like the things we talked about, like when I'd go up to Maine and produce bands and stuff. So, you know, I knew what I was doing, but for a major label production, Wrath would be my first. And it was like when there's a, you know, there's a a big gap between when you finish an album and when it comes out, right? You know, so Mm -hmm. uh, maybe four months. So if I wrapped Wrath, which was going to be debuted like number two on the billboard did like some insane number first week i mean it was unreal but right after i finished it nobody knew who i was you know i mean people in the industry knew because i again i'd been engineering for all these other guys so right after i finished this major production i had to go right back into the engineering role and sit back behind engineers immediately again you know i think a lot of people would have struggled that with that a little more than i did like just mentally well you go from running the show To not running the show. To not running the show, you know? I mean, it's definitely a downgrade. I didn't look at it like that. I just needed a gig, you know? like, And I went and sat right back in the engineering chair and I started like getting right back into it. So it's a weird time. It was like a weird time. Sounds to me like you've never been afraid to do what's necessary. For sure. When I moved to LA, so I had like a good little thing going in New York. Like I thought, you know, I was kind of like, the rock metal guy in New York. I had just done Lamb of God Resolution. I had done Gojira and I had done uh, Lon Fon Sauvage. And then I did, I don't know, I did a whole bunch of stuff on, out of my studio in New York. And then I was going to move to California with my wife. Like that was like a big change in my life. And I was like, dude, I'm like the, the, the rock guy in New York right now. Like what happens when I go to LA? You know, we talk about big fish in a small pond, not that New York's a small pond. In the rock game, it kind of is. Well, compared to LA, yeah. 
There's some bad motherfuckers in LA. There's bad motherfuckers in New York too, but there's just, you know, you can count them on like two hands. When LA, there's like bad motherfuckers and there's like in the hundreds. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, so I came out here all panicked. And so the first thing I did is I hit up my management and I was like, yo, give me any engineering gig that comes up. And they're like, you really want to do that? I was like, yeah, I want to do that. I'm not too good to work. You know, like I'll sit behind any producer and engineer a record for him. And I, that's exactly what I did as soon as I came to LA. Same exact thing. I like kind of took a step back to just make sure that I stayed busy. And then in, in the moment, I ended up taking a gig mixing. I was mixing for X Factor, the show. I ended up mixing the iTunes mixes for X Factor, all these like pop stuff, which got me back into the pop world. And it was super fun. I would crank out because of it. So, you know, they, they, they'd perform, the, the contestants would perform live and they'd give me the files afterwards and I had to have them mixed and uploaded that night. Um, so like eight to 10 performances as it, it got easier as the show, you know, contestants got knocked off the show. But when it was started out, it was like 16 mixes that I had to do that night. And I was like kind super of extreme. Late. It was pretty extreme. But by the time yeah. it whittled down and I kind of had a little system going to it, it was rad. And because of it, I had... One day I had the number one song in like four or five different categories on iTunes, country, pop, like alternative, all because of the iTunes X Factor mixes. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound like a step back. No, it's just a little, it's one of those things like nobody knows you're doing it, you know, like nobody had any idea who was mixing those things. Very different than when you do a Lamb of God record. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I'm sure that because of Wrath and all that work, it was just a matter of time before another heavy band came around. Sure, there was time between that because, uh, you know, I mean, after Wrath, I, once Wrath came out, like, yeah, I got busy with production work and it was, you know, but I stayed, you know, I've, I stayed, I've never felt like I was too good to work. I think that that's awesome. You know what, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I do. Like, if I had downtime and there was something that came along, I was like, let's do it, you know, like, you know, and a lot of times, like, I'll, I'll get emails or messages from kids and they're like, hey, do you ever work with unsigned bands? And I hate to answer that now because, I mean, it's been a long time. I'm not going to lie. But not because I don't want to, you know, like... You're not against it. Certainly, you know. In fact, I would love to. It'd be so much fun. And I did actually just recently. I take that back. Like, I did just work on developing an artist. And it was super fun, actually. And it was We ended up hiring Ray Luzier to play drums for it. It was badass. <laughs> yeah. The Motive Black. You can check it out. That was fun. I think you're right that a lot of people would have a problem with that. And you see that with bands too. Like, you know, they, they get to a certain level and then maybe the next record dips a little or maybe their popularity changes or whatever. And they don't want to take a lower slot on a tour than what they're used to. The thing is the super successful bands will do that kind of stuff and then end up growing again sure. I've noticed sure. but I do think that some people feel above that or an even bigger thing is recognizing if you need something to do better that you just need to do better you know like I, I've certainly felt that way on things like I've sent out a mix to a client and had them come back and not like it and it's very often like especially like new upcomers people being like these guys their notes are crazy they don't have any concept of what I did to make it you know what I mean it's so easy to like think that way because you work so hard on it but the better way to think is like hmm what do I got to do to get them to like this and like l put it inward you know like I need to be better to get this 
to get this to get them to like it. That's how I approach it. Anytime I do a mix, if I send it to a band and I don't, don't get like a positive feedback, because listen, it happens. Like I'll think I'll think I reinvented the wheel and I got the dopest thing ever. You know, I'm in here headbanging, just loving it. I send it to the band, they're like, eh. I'm like what? How do you <laughs> love this? But and they then, don't. But they don't, and it is what it is. So then I'm like, all right, well, what do you want? Tell me, because honestly, I always feel like if as long as I can have communication with the band, I will get it where they want. I, feel, I definitely feel confident in that. You just got to tell me, like, what's what's the things that you feel like you're lacking from this? And I will do everything in my power to get it there. I have definitely seen, and I think it's pretty natural that when you work really hard on something like a mix and you feel great about it, and then you get negative notes back from people who aren't mixers, there's this natural reaction to be, like you said, they don't know what they're talking about. But they do know what they're talking about. They know if they like it or not. That's what matters. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> that is absolutely it. You know, just recently I was mixing a song and it just wasn't recorded well. And it happens. The tracking was just not good. And all of the, in particular, the bass... And I mean, I just struggled to get this bass to sound like anything. And at some point, like I wanted the bass to be real up and present in the mix because I thought it was like the line and the part was cool, but it just wasn't recorded like it, you know, like, and it was in the DI, like it was like the bass they chose just wasn't a good bass. Bass is one of those instruments more than anything. I guess they're all like that. But, you know, if you pick up a bad instrument, there's no amp in the world that's going to fix it. It's just going to sound bad. And... I struggled with this bass guitar, man. It's, it happens to everybody. And finally, I was like, you know what? I just need to accept that it's not going to sound the way that I, like, the way I would record it. You know, like, I just need to let go of that and let this thing be what it is. They recorded it at some level. They must like it. And half the times, you know, I just strip it back to whatever they sent me and just put it in. And I'm like, there you go. There's your lousy bass. Enjoy it. And when everybody comes back like sounds great i'm like okay <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> how do you cross that mental barrier because i mean the job is you have to think it sounds good to a degree right so if you don't think it sounds good how do you get the because i guess good is the wrong word okay like i have to decide if it's acceptable like acceptable if it fits in the piece of music you know okay. like that's really the thing and maybe I just really want to hear this bass sound a certain way that it doesn't. Like that certainly happens where my vision of, if I was recording this, I would have had this be a very chainy top end bass that, you know, sounded cool. And they don't envision it. They want it to be thuddy and tubby and kind of just snuck away in the back, even though the part's sick and you would love to hear it, you know? Like, but if it's not recorded that way, I certainly can't create that. And I think that's, I guess that's the challenge is being able to just say like, well, I mean, this is the kind of bass that it is. And you do get those comments back from bands where they're like, can you make it sound like this? And I'm like, absolutely not. It sounds nothing like that. That's not what you recorded. And I have come back to bands, you know, like particularly like, you know, they come back and they're like, can you make the snare drum sound like this record? I'm like, not if you want me to use the drums you recorded. <laughs> like, <laughs> You tell me, what do you want me to do? <laughs> Can't always have it both ways. No, at some point I got to mix the production you give me. Yeah. So, dude, I don't want to take up your whole day. I've got a 
couple questions from our listeners, if you don't mind me asking. I got nothing going okay. on right now. Hit me. Cool. So uh, from Jordan Weathered says, I saw on the making of Sin in the sentence that the band fed off of your energy while tracking, which helped add to the vibe and feel of the songs. Can you give some examples of what you do to pump a band up to help with the vibe in the studio to make sure the recordings come out great? <laughs> I'm a big hollerer and fist pumper and jump off the couch and headbanger kind of guy. That quote was most definitely from Matt. <laughs> from the end of the sentence because when we were doing vocals like if he did a take there was a hurdle on that record you know I really wanted Matt to like gruff it up more than he had on the previous record and I was getting legit I, I love my job and I was legitimately getting excited when he was going down the road with me you know so as we're doing takes and I'm getting more and more excited and then all of a sudden he's and he like does exactly what I want to do I'm tracking vocals in the same room with him you know we're, we're both in the booth together and you know he's he lets loose and does what I want to and then as soon as I stop him like yeah like I'm screaming just as pumped as he is and then Matt starts laughing he's like what are you doing I'm like nothing let's go next let's go one more take and that's like a vocal session with me is a whole lot of like yeah do it again yeah you were a little sharp on that but everything else was sick please one more time let's go hit it again and I try to keep him moving as fast as I can because if the energy drops like the singers in particular man they feed off of you you know like I'm gonna get out of him everything I give him so as excited as I get, it comes into his performance and I, I try to do that. You know, I shouldn't even say I try to do that. That's just kind of, that's one of those things that just happens. I get pumped when I'm making a record and I start hollering a lot. Did that answer the question? I don't even know. Yeah, so it sounds like you don't even really have to try. You just get excited when shit's awesome. No, I start having fun. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, you know, we're making a record and it's, what what's cooler than our job, right? You know, we're making a record and it's sounding good and I get, I'm just uh, an excited enough guy that I'll stand up and scream about it. <laughs> All right. So here's one from Dennis Tui. What was it like to engineer a record with Tenacious D? I always wondered if they were all jokes in person too, or if maybe the musician side of them came through during the process. Also, how much fun was it? Man, great question. That will go on the list of like top three sessions of all time. It was so much fun. They Jack Black is just as funny I mean, he is on all the time. He is exactly the way you would expect him to be. And Kyle just kind of, he's like poking the bear with Jack all the time. Like he's just <laughs> constantly kind of like, like very quietly, like, yeah, well, maybe you could do Like just dropping his two cents to like irritate Jack enough that Jack kind of goes off. And so we So did they the, are who they are. They are who they are. When we did Death Star, man. And first of all, I lived in New York at the time. So I was out in LA and actually that's what I did right after Wrath. I did Wrath and I ended up, I needed an engineering gig and I came out and I engineered for that Tenacious D session. And it was, <laughs> you're right, it didn't feel like a step back. It was great. Like uh, I was at, you know, 606, Dave Grohl was playing drums. Like, give me a break, dude. It's like the That's coolest thing ever. That's not a step back. No, That's it was so not awesome. a step back. It was cool, you know, like they set up the drums and it's like, I mic'd them up the way I, you know, always would or whatever and... Dave goes in, he's like, ready? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he goes and he like plays the take and he's like, mind if I come in and listen? I was like, yeah, sure. He comes in, he sits down, he like bobs his head. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. It's like, fuck, sounds great. All right, let's do it. Like simplest session ever. Goes in, plays through the songs like three or four times, it's done. It's like, and then the rest of the time just spent goofing around and laughing and it was, it was a great session. Jack, on the other hand, <laughs> so when we did vocals, they put 
Jack and Kyle, they mic them both up and they do their vocals at the same time for exactly what I was talking about. Jack feeds off of Kyle. And it gets funny, man. Like that song Death Star in particular, like Jack goes, <laughs> I remember it, he only sang the song three times. He's a great singer. He sang the song three times. We come from the three takes. Cake. You know, the line's like, Death Star, it's a fucking ship. It's the son of a bitch and we're building it or something like that. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> you know, one of the lines is like, what's that? It's a fucking squid, an evil alien squid. Join on the ships. We're about to let it rip. It's about to burn this bitch to another dimension. So anyway, like the part of something like that, he only sings it three times. The first time he sings through it, like whatever. But by the third take, mind you, he's standing in the studio in the glass, like on the other side of the booth in front of him, I can see him. And he's like, he's, and he's like, by the end, this is going to be totally lost on podcast listeners, but you'll, you'll get the visual. <laughs> he's like, by the last take, he's like, what's that? It's a fucking squid. Like, and acting it out like he's doing a movie. And he's like, an evil alien squid. Join our ships. We're about to let it rip. Like, totally over the top. Fucking dying, man. We're all just like rolling while he's tracking. And when we're comping, if like you laughed during a take, he's like, that's the one. Like, you know, <laughs> like that was the official like, if you actually laughed out loud when you heard it, fun dudes. Everything about that was great. All right. Good question. Awesome. You know, I feel like I, I glazed over the other guys in the band who are all actually just as awesome. <laughs> I know. There's two very big celebrities in that band. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Jack Black and Dave Grohl and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's some, some big personalities. I still uh, actually, uh, the, the, the guitar player and, and the, the bass player, I still talk to him. The bass player actually recorded uh, himself the rest of the record, from what I understand. John Spiker. Oh, cool. Did a good job, I hope. He did a great job. I thought he, they, uh, I think they actually mixed that song that we tracked, if I remember correctly. Oh, cool. All right. From Jose Castro, you worked with one of my favorite bands, The Gazette, on Falling, their last album single. Is there any difference at all when mixing a song from a foreign, non-English-speaking band like them, or did you treat it as you normally would? Yeah. No, it's a Japanese band. If I remember correctly, I've, I've worked with a lot of Japanese artists. I love Japanese culture in particular, and I love the people. And so very often if a Japanese artist approaches me, they're, they don't know this, but I'm already like trying to get the gig just because I like the people. Yeah, you're in. And my studio Japanese is pretty good. Just from where, one of my first gigs ever, once, uh, once I kind of got out from under Andy's umbrella, was I went to Japan and spent a month there working on a record. Dude, that is a different world. It is great. The The culture is great. The people are great. The studios are amazing. Yeah, I, I will very often jump at any opportunity. But no, I pretty, I mean, it's, it's, it's all pretty much the same. The only thing, the only time I ever run into any kind of issue is on delay throws. <laughs> I've straight up been like, um, <laughs> like if the word, I don't know, if the word's hello and it's in Japanese, I'm like, uh, am I, uh, oh, Oh, am I delay? Am I delaying the oh oh or you know like or is it a f full word? I need to know where the delay is. You know, like you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Like, I'm yes. Saying, <laughs> I want to make sure I'm not just delaying some like the K some and, syllable and kick. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but no, outside of that, it's all it's all music. In fact, that particular session I just mentioned in Japan, the uh, the artist was Korean, the producer was Japanese, and myself being an American. And nobody spoke any of the other languages fluently. We had three different languages. The, the Korean artist spoke a little bit of Japanese and a little bit of English. And he was the go-between between the three of us. And we made a really cool record with nobody speaking the same language because mu music is universal. It absolutely is. It was really amazing how efficiently 
it ran with a massive language barrier. We did have a translator in there, but we would still laugh at the same jokes and, you know, if the drummer did something silly, like it was, music's universal, it works. Seems like you would almost just get forced to get down to business. <laughs> You'd think, but oddly enough, we ended up goofing around a lot. Like, it's funny, I, I've worked with Vamps and Hyde um, an awful lot and I've made really good friends in Japan and a couple of the friends, the guys that I would absolutely consider friends when I go to Japan speak almost no English. But when we see each other, we're stoked to see each other. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard thing to describe, you know, like uh, we'll, have, we'll, sh we'll share little moments with like one word jokes and stuff. I remember looking <laughs> in, in the fridge, we had a catered session on vamps. And I remember uh, looking like the, the, the caterer would like put, you know, sandwiches in the fridge from time to time. And I'd brought one down the day before and left it and forgot about it. Like a tuna sandwich or something the next day. I come into the lounge and I'm looking for something to eat. And, you know, the, the guitar tech is in the studio and he, he just sees me coming in and he kind of gets on like alert. Like, what, uh, what do you need? Can I help you with something? You know, and I'm kind of giving a, no, 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 it's at ease. You know, like he's, he's there to help, you know? And I'm like, no, 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 it's more than I. It's no problem, you know, I'm like, uh, and I like open the fridge and he realizes I'm looking for food and he realizes I'm staring at this old sandwich and he just behind me, I hear this dude, <laughs> Kiri just goes, oh, danger. <laughs> I was like, danger? And he's like, danger. And I'm like, all right, I won't eat the sandwich. <laughs> yeah. You're sharing these one word jokes. No mistaking that. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yeah. Last question. This is from Adrian Blazer. Sorry if I mispronounced it. The nothing from corn sounds amazing. Lots of soundscapes in all the songs. How did you manage all the little synths and ambience noises that we can hear in the record? Did you have certain freedom to manage all of that? I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for the question. And that record, Nick Raskolnik produced it. He did a great job. Yeah, he's great. And Jonathan Davis, little known secret about Jonathan that I don't think people understand. JD grew up in studios. He knows the recording process. Uh, he knows, like he has a studio. He knows all the gear. He knows all the tech. And he's a hell of a musician. I don't, I don't think he gets enough credit for as talented of a person as he is. Even being one of the biggest rock stars on earth, I still agree with you that he doesn't get the cred. Like, did you know that? Did you know that he... I only know that because a friend of mine works with him. Yeah, so... But it was a surprise when I found out. I'm guessing, Chris? Mike Montoya. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, a lot of, a lot of people just don't know that about him. And more importantly, he's... First of all, he's a super nice guy. Super nice guy. But between him and Nick, they have a very distinct vision on what they want the record to be. And I actually, it's great to hear that uh, all those nuances and stuff are noticed because I, I almost feel like there was so much material given to me um, on the corn mixes. It was very involved in depth mixes because most of those sessions, first of all, they're all 96K and they're max track count. The sessions are heavy. Like a, a one song would be like 80 gigs. <laughs> Holy shit. It's unreal. Managing the session alone was like a task. Like I couldn't mix a song in a day because I had like, you know, you understanding because I didn't produce it, I don't know the songs. So when there's like several hundred tracks of things and I don't know what those things are, like I'm going through listening them and like creating the song as I go. And I mean, I do have a rough mix to base it off of, but it's, uh, 
it's a whole new world when I'm trying to like piece it together and get it into like, I like to call it my picture. You ever have someone like send you a track and they already put the effects on it? Yes. Because they love how that sounds. Sometimes that's fine. Sometimes it, it doesn't fit in my picture. And that's the only way I can describe it. I'm like, I need, he's like, no, no, well, it's just a delay and a reverb. And I'm like, that's fine. But that delay and reverb and EQ balance don't fit in my picture. Yeah, just a delay and a reverb is a very general thing to say. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of guessing, but like, uh, you know, just recently I was doing something and the guy had like a like a really wide doubler on the vocal and like some chorus and all this stuff. And sometimes I can make it work. Sometimes it, like when I did Motionless and White, he had a very distinct vocal sound that he wanted and he sent it with and without the vocals, um, like his, you know, like his printed vocal sound. And I ended up, really paralleling it with my own to create something that again fit in my picture because his eq just didn't sit in my mix you know so i needed like the dry signal recreated his effects and then just kind of balanced in his wet one along with it to make it all work that kind of thing happens a lot anyway like, with, with all those synths and stuff and not even just synths just textures and corn it was a lot of like little noodley guitars that do little things and sweeps and bends and stuff like that. Like they have a lot of stuff. And in particular, we did that whole record. I, I'd stream the mixes to Jonathan at the end of the night. You know, Nick would sign off on the mixes and then I'd stream the mixes to Jonathan at night and he would very detailed go through the vocals with me. Like I want this harmony up. Um, you know, I do like a live stream of the mix and we both sit there and listen in real time. And that's how we got through the record. I don't know if I actually answered the question. What was it? How did I deal with it? <laughs> yeah, it sounds to me like you dealt with it by the what I understood was first of all intense session management and second of all intense detective work just to figure it and then also intense collaboration. Yeah, 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 you pretty much summed it up very well. Not just Jonathan Davis. I think Corn Again, it's weird to say this because they're so big and have been so big for so long, but I don't think they get enough credit for how awesome they are. Let's talk about that. Okay. Because <laughs> I have a very strong opinion on this. I'm going to say it. Corn changed music the way Nirvana changed music. I agree. Before them, and they do not get the credit for that because before them, it was grunge. And the same way that grunge came in and wiped out hair metal... Corn came in and everybody was wearing Adidas tracksuits and records sonically started sounding different. There was no low end like we put in records now before Corn. I don't know, it was Fear Factory. They might have But they're on the they're on around <laughs> the same time period though. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like they really I mean, if they didn't pioneer it, they rammed it home. I think they pioneered it. No, they changed they definitely were like the sweeping global change in music. Not just that, they throw down live still. Like they hit so much harder live than bands half their age. They're, I don't know how to say it. I think they're just devastating live. They're great live. And uh, Ray was telling me on Jonathan Davis' solo record, there was like a beat. I don't know if, if, you've, if you heard JD's solo record, there's like some really cool stuff going on in that album. Um, and all the drums are like one particular beat. I was talking to Ray about it. Ray Luzier played drums on that as well. And I was like, dude, that is like the raddest beat. Like it's so out there. Like, how did you even think of that? And he's like, it's not even me. He's like, JD came up with that. 
And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, dude, he's a badass drummer. Had no idea. And, but then I got thinking about it. I'm like, this dude can play the bagpipes. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> maybe if you know how to play the bagpipes, maybe you got a pretty good understanding of music. <laughs> you could play like a lot of different instruments. How strange is it that he knows how to play the bagpipes? I'm going to have to make a leap that he might play guitar too. <laughs> just, just, uh, just a guess. I think maybe the the theory is if you know like accordion or bagpipes, those are the two instruments you know. <laughs> Man, I don't know any other bagpipe players. No, he's, he's, uh, he's a talented dude. He really is. That whole band, man, they're 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 great guys. I I think I've been really fortunate. I don't know that I don't think I've ever worked with a band. Nope, I take that back. But I will say ninety nine percent of the bands I've worked with have been nothing but great people. Man, you've had quite the roster. It's pretty cool. I'm always trying to push the bar and wonder what the next one is. You know. I'll just close on this. I think that that's probably why you're getting those kinds of bands is because of that attitude. It reminds me of uh, I've said this before, but the guitar player, Jeff Loomis, who's like one of the best lead guitar players ever in metal. I remember I was talking to him a few years ago, and I think he was like 42 years old at the time. And he was telling me that he was getting guitar lessons. And I was like, Jeff Loomis is getting guitar lessons. Interesting. It's because he still wants to get better. He still doesn't think he's good enough. And if that guy doesn't think he's good enough, then nobody else can ever think they're good enough. I think that that attitude is why he's so awesome and why he's done great. I think that that attitude is necessary. Got to keep reaching. Absolutely. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really glad we got to do this. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Sorry I talked your ear off. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of the point, isn't it? (laughs) I guess so. No, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.